0: Hi listeners, this is the 80,000 Hours podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and whether I'd be willing to give up Happy Meals to get rid of biological weapons. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. We've been talking about global catastrophic biological risks since our fourth episode back in 2017, and we've had a lot more to say about preventing pandemics since we've actually uh, been in one. But to date, something we've only talked about in passing – are concrete policy changes that would actually help to reduce the worst biological risks specifically, rather than just control normal emerging respiratory diseases. That's why I was delighted to speak with Jamie Yassef, who is one of the sharpest and most spirited people in the world working on this question. She used to be a program officer at Open Philanthropy, and she's now a senior fellow focused on biological weapons control at the Nuclear Threat Initiative. One thing I really valued about this interview was finally getting more of a concrete sense of how international organizations work and where they might actually be useful to make the world a better place. I have to admit, when people start talking about the WHO, UN agencies, arms control conventions and so on, I don't usually feel like I have enough context about the actors or their motivations to be able to tell what's going to be valuable or to know where listeners might be able to slot in there and hopefully make a difference. But after hearing from Jamie, I feel a bit less adrift on that topic, and I hope that understanding will have some crossover value when I'm thinking about other policy areas besides pandemics. In this conversation, we first focus on a coherent set of policy proposals that aim to firstly make it a lot harder for non-state actors to deliberately or accidentally produce a really dangerous pathogen, and secondly, to ensure that states really, really don't want to go and do dangerous experiments or operate bioweapons programs in the first place. Jamie and I also talk about how the Biological Weapons Convention ended up without much funding or an enforcement mechanism in the first place, why Jamie focuses on prevention rather than response when it comes to biological catastrophes, and also Jamie's disagreements with the effective altruism community. This all might sound pretty serious, but Jamie is one of those people who couldn't be dull to talk to uh, even if she was trying. If you think you might be interested to dedicate your career to reducing global catastrophic biological risks – then stick around to the end of the episode to get Jamie's advice on a bunch of different issues, including how people outside the US can best contribute, and how to weigh up roles in academia versus those in think tanks, nonprofits, national governments, and of course, international organizations. All right, without further ado, I bring you Jamie Yassef. Today, I'm speaking with Jamie Yassef. Jamie is a Senior Fellow for Global Biological Policy and Programs at the Nuclear Threat Initiative, with a particular focus on reducing global catastrophic biological risks and strengthening governance of bioscience and biotechnology. Prior to this, Jamie served as a Program Officer at the Open Philanthropy Project, where she recommended approximately $40 million worth of grants focused on biosecurity and pandemic preparedness. Before all that, she completed a biophysics PhD at UC Berkeley and was a Science and Technology Policy Advisor at the US Department of Defense. So thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Jamie.
1: Thanks so much, Rob. It's great to be here and really excited to chat with you about reducing global catastrophic biological risks.
0: I hope we'll get to talk about how we can motivate countries to take appropriate care around global catastrophic biological risks. But first, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important?
1: Great. So something I wanted to share at the top is just a project that we at NTI are really excited about and we're working to develop a new international organization or entity that's dedicated to biosecurity and to strengthening gover- governance of bioscience and biotechnology research and development. And the reason that we're really interested in this space is we think this work can meaningfully reduce two really important risks that we think are closely tied to GCBRs. So one of them is deliberate attacks with engineered pathogens by malicious actors, and one of them is an accidental release with an engineered pathogen with catastrophic consequences on a global scale. So we're really focused on reducing those risks. And if you believe that engineered pathogens are more likely to cause a GCBR than perhaps a naturally emerging pathogen, I think that's a compelling reason to really focus on this space. You know, I I know we're going to get into it more in detail later, but I'll just tell you at a very high level that, you know, the way that we're envisioning this organization is that its mission is going to be fairly broad and it's going to be focused on sort of promoting stronger global norms for biosecurity across the board and to develop tools and, and systems to sort of incentivize and make it easier to adhere to those norms, you know, meaningful, tractable ways to concretely reduce risk. So, you know, there's a lot of work to be done there and we're excited about it. And we'll talk about it a bit more later in the interview.
0: Yeah, I think our regular listeners will be familiar with some of the threats that we face, but we'll give a quick primer on them uh, again later on. So you mentioned you're trying to start a new international organization. Is this a nonprofit or some kind of new UN agency or, or something like that?
1: So the way that we envision this organization is it would be an independent organization. It would be nonprofit so that it can be agile and innovative and work closely with all the key stakeholders and keep up with rapid advances in science and technology. But that importantly, in order to be, have legitimacy and be effective, it would work really closely with the UN system, including uh, key parts of the World Health Organization and key parts of the UN that are associated with the Biological Weapons Convention.
0: In terms of global catastrophic biological risks, you can cut it up into a couple of different categories, I guess. I suppose one is like active military bioweapons programs. I suppose another one might be like accidental releases of something dangerous from legitimate scientific research labs. And I guess the third category, of course, is just natural pandemics that are that happen to be extremely bad. How does the magnitude of the risk across these things compare, do you think? And which one are you guys focused on primarily?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think your description of the three buckets is roughly right. There's deliberate risks that could come from either state actors or non-state actors, There is accidental release that could come from a wide variety of sources. And then there's naturally emerging infectious disease outbreaks and pandemics. You know, I think a lot of different people in the community have speculated about which pose a greater threat and which is most likely to pose a global catastrophic biological risk. And we don't have enough evidence to say definitively that we know it's A and not B or vice versa. I think the argument within parts of the biosecurity community and parts of the effective altruism community that I identify with is that engineered pathogens pose a more significant risk from a GCBR perspective than perhaps naturally emerging infectious diseases, at least in the long term. They're much more likely to cause a global catastrophic biological risk in my view. And therefore, we should really focus on the kinds of pandemics that can be caused by human activity, either a deliberate attack or an accidental release of a pathogen that has been engineered in a laboratory. And in fact, NTI, our bio team is working to reduce risks across the board, but we're primarily focused on reducing deliberate and accidental release risks. That's where we feel that we have a comparative advantage.
0: Yeah, I guess that makes a lot of sense, given that I suppose Nuclear Threat Initiative's background is working on nuclear non-proliferation and control and weapons issues. So I suppose it's natural for you to take on the issue of bioweapons and I guess other irresponsible production by people of dangerous material.
1: Well, I mean, I think that that's close to how I think we would view it at NTI. I mean, we view our mission as reducing catastrophic risks to humanity that could imperil our long-term future that could come from nuclear or biological sources. We don't necessarily have a bias towards human-caused events, but we want to address the risks that we believe are most significant to the long-term future of humanity so we can build a safer world. And so we're very strategic about how we prioritize our time and our efforts.
0: So we've got a lot of listeners who are in some way involved with the effective altruism community. What do you think that broader group, like the kind of listeners to the, to the show, or perhaps me, are most likely to get wrong about global catastrophic biological risks?
1: There are a couple areas where I feel like I've had spirited debates with my very smart colleagues in the effective altruism community. And I have a lot of respect For the EA community, I I really appreciate how rigorous people are when they think about this problem sets. And I think they've really challenged our community to think harder about how we prioritize our efforts and how do we really most meaningfully address catastrophic biological risks. So first of all, I want to give credit where credit is due. But I will say that I think the areas where we've had differences of opinion are, you know, two key areas. One Phenomenon I've noticed in the effective altruism community is that sometimes people like to identify one big thing that could happen that is the most important thing and it'll be like a thousand or a hundred times more effective than anything else you could do. And I think there's a desire for us to identify what that is in biosecurity and sort of just dedicate a vast majority of our resources and time to that one thing. And I am skeptical of that approach personally. You know, there is a chance that maybe. As we look back, there may have been things that we have done that were more effective at reducing risks. But a priori, I think it's very difficult to tell. And I think it's really important to have a layered defense that has multiple theories of risk reduction. I don't believe that there's one silver bullet. Related to that, I think something that I consider to be an open question is what is the greatest source of global catastrophic biological risks? Should we be worried more about states or non-state actors? I'm concerned about both. In the long term, it's not obvious to me that we should focus exclusively on one or the other. I think both are significant risks. And we shouldn't ignore non-state actors, for example. I think some folks in the community think that states are a greater risk. And then the third thing I would add is sometimes I notice in the A community there's a real excitement about finding technology solutions to problems. And I think technology solutions are fabulous and a really important tool And sometimes they're very attractive because it's easier. You don't have to build broad coalitions to support. You just develop the technology. your
0: conversations.
1: Yeah. You (laughs) you know, and I think there are aspects of that that I personally find appealing. But I would stress that you can't solve all the problems with technology. And you do have to work with people and institutions sometimes. And even though that's messy, sometimes you got to do the hard work to drive institutional change to really have sustainable solutions. So those are some of the ongoing conversations that we're having about areas where we don't necessarily agree.
0: Something I noticed preparing for this interview is it seems like the conclusion is that there isn't a silver bullet here and that instead you just need to layer a bunch of different risk reduction methods on top of one another and kind of each one maybe halves the risk and then collectively they've they've made a really huge difference. I had this vague sense that in the past people might have gotten a bit stuck by this search for the silver bullet and then they couldn't find anything that would by itself solve the problem or even like solve the problem 90% or anything like that. And so then they were like, oh, well, I guess we should just keep on researching and trying to find something. But maybe the way forward is instead this approach of having five or 10 different things that you do, each of which, you know, reduces the risk more like 50% or perhaps 30%. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think that's basically right. And in defense of the effective altruism community, I don't think this community is the only community that has like sort of fallen into that mode of thought We, in recent years and recent decades, as as our community has struggled to find really effective ways to reduce risks and threats in the biospace, anytime you come up with any solution, you know, people can poke holes in it. And it's very tempting to say, oh, well, it's not 100% solution or there are big holes in it and therefore that's not an answer and we should drop it. And I think that that's a mistake. Having tried to develop multiple solutions and continuing to go through that pattern, I've decided that... Just because something has holes or is imp- it doesn't reduce the risk by 100% doesn't mean we should drop it. Um, and then I think in terms of this layer defense, I absolutely believe that that's the way to go. And, you know, when I was working at OpenFill as a program officer, we had a conversation that I thought was really helpful way to talk about it in simple terms, which is just you find all the biggest holes in the system and you try to plug the biggest holes first. So I'm not making an argument that we shouldn't prioritize. We actually should. And there are a priori ways to figure out what are more and less impactful things we can do. But I think we shouldn't reduce the list down to one or two actions. It should be a longer list.
0: Yeah, makes sense. Broadly speaking, you could split uh, trying to stop catastrophic pandemics into two different approaches. One would be to stop the first person getting infected at all. And then another approach is trying to stop the pandemic from spreading from that point. So trying to detect the pandemic early and then contain it or come up with treatments really quickly. It sounds like you're basically focused on the on the first one of stopping the first person from getting infected. Why focus on that stage?
1: First of all, I believe that, again, my just sort of keeping with my layered defense mantra here, I think prevention, detection, response are all critical elements. And I think for the world to be safer from pandemics and global catastrophic biological risks, we need to do all three. I think we need a division of labor in the community. I think others in the community are doing a lot of great work on early detection and response. Our bio team at NTI is engaged in some efforts that are related to early detection and response, including our Global Health Security Index, where we've done an assessment of 195 countries and looking at their pandemic preparedness capabilities across the board and trying to draw attention to the need to fill those gaps. So we really believe in the full spectrum of activities and we are in fact working on them. The work that I personally as an individual am engaged on is more focused at the moment on prevention. But I think that's just because I see really big gaps in the area. I think it's a more of a neglected area than some of the other areas. And so I think the marginal impact that I individually have on the space is greater by working on prevention, though it is a challenging area to work.
0: Yeah. Just briefly on the, on the containment side of things, I don't know whether you heard the Andy Weber interview that we did earlier in the year, or possibly you've heard his opinions elsewhere, because I think he tends to talk about them quite a lot. But he has this proposal for containing potential GCBRs where I guess you try to get DNA sequencing all over the place so that we can detect any new biological threats really quickly. And then he thinks we should have a system for very rapidly developing new mRNA vaccines against any new pathogens, which is really great because it's mRNA vaccines are kind of a platform that you can quickly adapt to new pathogens. And then also have in mind a system for really quickly vaccinating the whole world against any new pathogen with these vaccines that we hopefully develop within weeks or months. Do you have any thoughts on that? Is that that something that excites you, even though it's perhaps not as much within your wheelhouse?
1: First of all, I used to work for Andy Weber. So back when I worked at the Department of Defense and government, he was an assistant secretary and I worked for him and his team at at the Department of Defense. And I'm a huge fan of Andy Weber and his work. And we're really lucky to have him in the field. So I'll just start with that. Second, I'll say that I totally agree with the ideas that he is advocating for. And I think that we should absolutely invest in those capabilities. I think early detection and building a more robust biosurveillance system nationally and globally and one that includes sequencing. I think would be incredibly valuable for early detection for the reasons that you state we need. You know, if we can contain pandemics before they turn into pandemics early, that's a huge gain in terms of risk reduction. Likewise, I'm a huge fan of platform technologies for medical countermeasure development. And mRNA technology is sort of the leading technology that's most advanced and most promising at the moment. There may be other technologies that become an option in the future, and we should consider those as well. The days are gone where we sort of think about one bug and one drug, and then we stockpile vaccines for known pathogens. I think if we want to look to the future and reduce risks meaningfully, we have to be prepared for surprise. And so a platform technology that can really respond in an agile way to quickly develop a new medical countermeasure in response to a new threat is absolutely the way that we need to go. We should pour lots of resources into it. However, like any system that we develop to reduce risks, there are going to be failure modes. And that is just a feature of this space. And so we absolutely should do all those things. And we should also do prevention as well. We should not have a single point of failure. If this is really part of a shared global effort to safeguard the future of humanity, We need to intervene at every point possible, prevention, detection, and response to reduce the risk as close to zero as we can that we would face something catastrophic from a biological release in the future. So really grateful that Andy's working on those issues. Would love to see those things come to pass in addition to all the other ideas that we'll be talking about today.
0: All right. So on that note, let's push into the meat of the Nuclear Threat Initiative uh, agenda on, on, on GCBRs. At a high level, NTI's work to prevent GCBRs is, I think, the way that you see it, are broken down into, into two parts, which you call constraining capabilities and shaping intent, respectively. And constraining capabilities is focused on limiting what dangerous things malicious actors like you know, you know, rogue groups are able to do by exploiting legitimate academic research science or the work that's coming out of biotech companies. And we'll come back and, and deal with that stream later on in, in the conversation. But I actually want to start, if possible, with this idea of shaping intent, because I think it's super interesting. The basic idea here is that if a powerful or well-resourced country wants to do some dangerous thing with novel bioscience, then in your view, and I think by my view as well, there's not a whole lot we can do to stop them from being able to buy the equipment or hiring people to pursue that idea if they're really committed to it. Maybe we could slow them down a little bit, but that doesn't really get us where we want to be, which is really discouraging uh, that, that dangerous kind of activity by states. And that means that instead we need to focus on this other approach, which in short is making states not want to do a dangerous experiments or, or run bioweapons programs, because if a country thinks it's clearly not in their interest to do so, then they probably won't do it and they'll be good. What's the key mechanism we have for kind of shaping the intent or motivations of, of states and other big actors whose capabilities are hard to constrain?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I want to start by just explaining why a rational country or perhaps an irrational country sometimes might decide to pursue a biological weapons program or even use a biological weapon. So, you know, I think that there's sort of two sets of motivations or three, actually, that we should really be thinking about when we're trying to shape intent. So one of them is just fear of what their adversary might be up to. And so recognizing right now that there's not as much transparency among states about what is going on with regard to biodefense and bioscience and biotechnology development, you know, there is a risk that there could be misperceptions, that there could be escalating suspicion, and that could lead to an undesirable future where you have arms racing behavior. And so that's a future we really want to avoid. And, you know, a way that you address that is through increased transparency. And the transparency is helpful in the sense that if, in fact, The vast majority of states aren't in violation of the Biological Weapons Convention. That would just help clarify that. And to the extent that transparency could actually bring to light where there are violations, that's also information we want to know. On the other hand, I think there's another set of motives, which is, let's assume a country isn't necessarily being driven by fear, but they think that they have some sort of strategic or tactical advantage for having a biological weapon. And there may be some instances where they could get away with something that they could launch an attack maybe in a targeted way, maybe in a way that's like clandestine. And because current international tools for attribution and accountability are not, in my view, what they should be, that they might not get caught or if they are suspected of doing something that they wouldn't be held accountable and they could get away with it. And I think that we need to change that to the extent that that's true. And I think there are a lot of tools and systems we can build up in the international community to strengthen deterrence regarding bioweapons development and use. I do want to also just note that a lot of the times when you think about shaping intent, it's assuming rational action. I do want to note that sometimes institutions do have irrational behavior and there's some historical evidence of this. So within large bureaucracies, even if at the highest levels governments don't want to develop a bioweapons program, there might be strange activities within large bureaucracies if they're weird institutional drivers for an individual scientist or for an individual institution seeking budgets to sort of push in a
0: certain or a company.
1: Company less so I think really okay. you know that is that is a different set of incentives and I still think that a lot of the sort of bigger picture ideas we're focused on in terms of shaping rational decision making could address those motives as well. But those are the sort of three paths in my view that you can imagine getting to a bioweapon development program. And I believe that it's plausible that effective action in the space to build stronger institutions and capabilities could dissuade a country from seeking to develop a new program or explore new research that sort of crosses the line.
0: Yeah. So I guess if a country is rational, then making it more likely that their violation of the Biological Weapons Convention would be detected and then they would face some negative consequence, that should make them less likely to want to pursue it. I suppose even a country that's irrational, even if they're pursuing a bioweapons program, in a sense, foolishly or against their own interests, and I suppose just piling on the probability of detection and the scale of the consequences they might face still might push them over the line, even if they're not assessing things completely rationally. You've raised this issue of potential arms race uh, with biological weapons, and past guests have, have raised that as well. But I'm just imagining that scenario where you've got you know, country A and country B who do not have amicable relations, and A suspects that B has a biological weapons program. Would A really benefit that much from establishing their own bioweapons program? How does that really help them to defend themselves? They, they could just invest in all kinds of other military stuff that isn't related to bioweapons programs. I guess I'm, I'm not quite understanding how it exactly assists them in the arms race situation.
1: Sure. I mean I think that's a fair question and certainly not to trying to justify the development of biological weapons or encourage any state to seriously consider it. That's definitely not my position, just to be very clear. But I think if you want to sort of really understand where rationale might come from, I think, you know, some people are concerned that bioweapons could be viewed as an asymmetric weapon. So If you're a superpower and you've got lots of resources, then it's easy to build up very strong conventional capabilities that are very effective in deterring adversaries from attacking you and actually can be used in warfare. And there's no sort of moral or humanitarian norm against using conventional weapons. But those are expensive and hard to develop. And having an edge in conventional terms is hard. Uh, Nuclear weapon is an asymmetric weapon. And so there have been some discussions about how that dynamic works and we need to work to disincentivize development of nuclear weapons. But I would say the threshold for developing a biological weapon is even lower because dual use bioscience and biotechnology, knowledge, tools, resources, they're widely distributed. And so there's just a lower barrier to entry. And so you could imagine a country saying, well, I can develop this asymmetric weapon at lower cost and it's more accessible to me than these other means of military dominance or deterrence.
0: Yeah. But before we turn to the new ideas for, for deterrence, maybe let's talk about the things that we already have. A lot of people will know that the US in the past has used military force against countries that are or that they suspect or purportedly suspect uh, of having biological or, or chemical weapons. I guess famously Saddam Hussein in the, in the 90s and then uh, again in 2003, the threat of force was used against Syria uh, throughout the 2010s uh, regarding their, their potential uh, chemical weapons. To what extent can the problem of bioweapons be solved this way?
1: You know, I know the U.S. has played this role in the past. And I I guess I would say I wouldn't want to build an entire international arms control regime based on an assumption that the U.S. is going to police the global order. I don't think it's a reliable approach. I think it's sort of a very last resort. and, And fundamentally, it's not always legitimate in the eyes of the international community. And it's messy. And so it involves conflict and a lot of innocent people that die on both sides. By the time you get to that point, there's a lot of cost. And so I think we are much safer if we can get upstream of this and just prevent countries from from exploring this in the first place and not get to a point where weapons development or production may have commenced and we're trying to bomb it out of existence. I think that's a really tough place to be, and it's not a theory of change that I think is... um, Ideal. (laughs) Yeah, nor is it really, you know, and a lot of countries around the world don't find that to be a legitimate international tool.
0: To what extent, then, might we be able to rely on robust biosecurity intelligence capabilities to be able to detect any bioweapons programs that the country might be initiating.
1: I guess I want to step back for a second, sort of tell a big picture of what I think is like the positive case for what we can do to shape intention. And then I'm happy to talk about intelligence. My recipe for more robust systems is we need more effective transparency for the reasons I said before, which is to sort of reduce the risks of arms racing and reduce the risks of misperceptions that could lead to arms racing. And so people have talked about that in the past as verification. I think verification is a complicated word with a long history, and we can unpack that in a few minutes if you'd like. But I think that there's work to be done there. The second piece is I think we need more effective means of investigating the origins of a high-consequence biological event if and when it does occur so that there is an internationally legitimate, evidence-based, transparent process to actually effectively run that to ground and fairly quickly. That's important. I would argue that we don't really have the full suite of capabilities that we need to get there. And we have a lot of work to do there too. And I see an opportunity. The third piece is accountability. If we are in fact able to reliably attribute the source of an attack or an event to either a state or an non-state actor, they should be held accountable in ways that would actually be meaningful. That's hard, but I do think it's necessary. So I just wanted to sort of paint a big picture. So in addition to all those things I said, I think... In terms of trying to get upstream of risks and anticipate them early before they're fully present, if we want to really be effective at preventing high consequence biological events, we as an international community should get better at anticipating threats. I think there's a lot of opportunity for governments and countries around the world to invest more in intelligence gathering for biosecurity threats to see if other states or our non-state actors might ha- be interested in developing biological weapons or if they're actively engaged in those pursuits. We should get better at detecting that early and and really dedicate more resources. I think there's a lot of value in that.
0: Yeah. So you mentioned verification. I guess, famously, the Biological Weapons Convention doesn't really have a verification or any enforcement mechanism. And it only has, I think, about three staff or something like that. Why that's uh, the case is an interesting story that you put me onto when I was preparing for the interview. Your focus isn't history here, but it's relevant because there was this uh, kind of big push to add a verification uh, mechanism in the 90s, which ended up not panning out, which I guess we need to learn from. What was the setup there?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, I mean, as you point out, the BWC doesn't have a verification regime. It also lacks a large institution to support it. So the BWC, the only support it has institutionally is a three-person implementation support unit. Its annual budget is $1.5 million a year. Some of our friends in the effective altruism community have pointed out that that's roughly the cost of running one McDonald's restaurant in a franchise for a year, which is just not the right level of spending, in my view, <laughs> and really in many people's view, for this really important global institution.
0: Seems like it's doing more important work, but
1: <laughs> Yeah, I would argue. Um, I think the case for that is pretty clear. But in terms of the verification piece... There was a very vigorous attempt made in the 90s. So there were a series of measures that were part of the process in the 90s to try to develop a verification mechanism. So back in 1991, at the BWC Review Conference, the state's parties agreed to establish something called VERIX, which was tasked with preparing a technical report on the feasibility of potential verification measures, recognizing, hey, you know, there's been some advances in bioscience and biotechnology. It's the 90s. And what can we do that's different than what we might have been able to do before? And then a few years later in 1994, as part of a special conference in Geneva, I believe, the state's parties established something called an ad hoc group. And that actually had a mandate to negotiate a verification protocol. That was a big deal at the time. And so over the next, I guess, uh, seven or eight years, the state's parties to the BWC undertook serious efforts to negotiate what that agreement might look like.
0: And this included how many countries? So it's just like, is this kind of every signatory to the BWC, which is, you know, almost 200?
1: That's right. All the states parties at the time, I even mean, there were fewer at that time than there are now, but, you know... Still a handful. Yeah, like roughly, I think 170, I would guess at the time, 180 states parties to the BWC, a very large group. I mean, I'll tell you what, what the punchline was at the end game, and then I'll back up and tell you why this did work out. So at the end of the day in 2001 the chairman of the BWC meeting, he had this uh, compromise text and it basically captured all the different positions and the open questions associated with the negotiation. It was a text that the state's parties were going to try to refine to come to an agreement. What happened is basically the United States government walked away from the negotiations. They withdrew their support from this text and this process. And I think a lot of people will show up at meetings and say, oh, well, the United States." is the reason that this didn't happen and they're to blame. And I think that that's facile. And I don't think it's fully accurate. And I think it's much more complicated than that. And it kind of gets into the politics of the BWC as institutional body and also the history of the discussions.
0: So the proximate cause, the cause that was very visible to journalists, I guess, who hadn't been following this closely was... um... And
1: just political figures in countries around the world. It's very convenient to blame the US, you know.
0: Yeah, so there was uh, John Bolton, right? This uh, Mm -hmm. somewhat uh, bellicose, somewhat (laughs) aggressive U.S. diplomatic figure. I guess under under the Bush administration, they walked away from the table, said this is pointless, we're out. But there were far deeper reasons why they walked away, and probably it wouldn't have made any difference if they'd stayed. Do you want to explain why?
1: Yeah, I'm happy to unpack that, and I just want to you know make it clear that I'm not a historian, but I you know this particular issue is really important to me. And my thinking about this topic is shaped by some writing done by Kenneth Ward. There's a really great paper in the Nonproliferation Review that some folks might want to check out. It's called the BWC Protocol Mandate for Failure.
0: Yeah, it's a cracker.
1: (laughs) It's great. And so, you know, I'll readily acknowledge that, you know, it is very much a Western perspective and a U.S. perspective. And I don't agree with 100 percent of the things that he says, but I do think he makes some really compelling arguments about some of the underlying causes for why this fundamentally was a very weak process that was unlikely to succeed as it was constructed. Was he
0: a negotiator in the process? Or just an observer? Okay, yeah.
1: I believe that he was a negotiator in the process. So he participated, he viewed it up close, and he was associated with the US government. So obviously, he's not an unbiased observer. And so you can take his perspective with a grain of salt. But basically, his argument, which I think sounds very plausible, is that So something that's important to understand generally about the BWC is it's not 100 plus, almost 200 individual countries acting acting as individual actors. It's broken into these three blocks that are really a historical artifact of the Cold War. You've got the Western group, which is sort of Western countries, many of which are allied with the U.S. You've got Europe. (laughs) You've got the Eastern Bloc, which is sort of a group that's associated with the former Soviet Union and countries that are closely allied to them. And then you've got the non-aligned movement, which is a lot of countries from the global south developing countries, and they all have slightly different interests. And those interests came forth in this discussion. So here were the challenges. So the non-aligned movement fundamentally, you know, as part of these protocol negotiations, they were really advocating for development assistance. They wanted to sort of weaken some of the export controls, including the Australia Group, so they could have, have access to technology. Technology transfer is important to them. And they wanted also financial assistance to sort of build their own capability. Biotech industry. Exactly, exactly. And so... What's the Australia Group? So the Australia Group is a group of uh, like-minded countries, mostly Western, that have agreed upon export controls of key technologies that are associated with potential weapons of mass destruction. And so it constrains the export of certain knowledge or goods to certain countries that could otherwise lead to proliferation of weapons of mass destruction.
0: Some poorer countries, some developing countries weren't keen on this because they saw it as limiting their scientific research development or their economic development. And so they wanted to see those kind of export controls reduced and and maybe even countries like Australia or the U.S. paying to build a biotech R&D industry or sector within their countries.
1: Yeah, so they're emphasizing economic development assistance and weakening of certain export controls as part of their positioning in the context of these discussions And so that was sort of what they were pushing for, which was viewed by others as a threat to the non-proliferation regime and could actually exacerbate proliferation and weaken the BWC overall. And so that was a dynamic that was underway. And there were some other countries that had other agendas. I'm not going to name names. I'd rather keep it sort of neutral. But there were certain countries that were trying to create a list-based approach to what is considered a biological threat. Instead of sort of having a general purpose criteria and saying, well, if you have intention to weaponize this, it's already crossing the line and sort of redefining what it means to violate the BWC to a list based approach where you basically define within these quantities and these categories of pathogens. This is a violation and therefore implicitly things that follow out fall outside the specific list have what was perceived to be a quote unquote safe harbor. And so, again, to some other countries, including in the West, there was a concern that this could create big holes in the BWC in terms of what is considered a violation that, again, could undermine the convention. And then a third thing is there were some other attempts at part of what would be an effective verification mechanism would include challenge inspections. I mean, that's commonly found in other regimes. So some countries were trying to weaken the the challenge inspections provisions by saying they would have to pass through the U.N. Security Council in which certain countries have veto power. So all of these things were viewed by others as, as really weakening what was possible and weakening the BWC and, and untenable. And so there were a lot of big open questions about which countries weren't able to reach agreement. Not to mention the fact that even within the Western group, there wasn't full agreement about the extent and scope of what this verification regime would look like. So there was just a lot of, it was hard. I mean, it was a really challenging negotiation and really entrenched positions in different political groupings. And so it wasn't clear that they were ever going to arrive at some sort of consensus statement about what was going to work that was going to be like meaningfully strengthening BWC instead of weakening it.
0: Yeah. So the Biological Weapons Convention operates on consensus. So every country that's party to it in order to change it would have to agree to change the rules, right?
1: That's right. So the BWC is a consensus-based decision-making body. And so it is, in fact, very challenging to agree on big changes with that kind of approach.
0: Okay, so you need a consensus. And as you've laid out, there were different priorities, definitely competing priorities between the different countries. It kind of surprises me that people spent seven or eight years trying to reach consensus when it seems like it might have become apparent fairly quickly that that was never going to happen.
1: You know, I don't think everyone shared the view that it wasn't going to happen. I mean, I've spoken with people about the plausibility of revisiting the question of verification or thinking about it in new light, refreshing the conversation people who were involved in those negotiations, I think some of them believed that the solution was in sight and they just needed more time and more political space. I'm not in the minds of the people who were involved in those negotiations, and I certainly wasn't there at the time, but I believe that the people who were engaged in it in earnest genuinely had faith that a solution was within reach. And I do believe generally, you know, notwithstanding how challenging it can be to advance progress within a consensus-based decision-making body, I think that if you can get enough of these divergent political groups to align their interests, I mean, we do have a lot of shared interests in building a safer world. We do have a lot of common interests. I can imagine a future where this body could really change its political dynamics and be more constructive and make progress with a consensus-based decision-making process. But we have to break out of the, the current political blockings and the current dynamics are just not conducive. And we need to have a radically different environment. And that's going to take a lot of smart young people who are energized and, and sort of participating from a lot of different countries with a different view that really like are earnestly trying to tackle this issue. And I'm hoping that members of the effective altruism community can help us be part of that solution.
0: So most countries care about bioweapons control to some greater or lesser degree, but it seems like the great majority don't care about it as much as you and I do. What do you think is kind of the main reason for that?
1: I think there are a couple things going on here. So one of them is that a lot of countries very legitimately are focused on reducing the risk posed by naturally occurring infectious disease outbreaks and pandemics because they're facing those risks every day. It is a drain on their economy. It's a drain on their workforce and it kills their publics. And so that's what's in front of them now. And they need help with that now. And I think that is a totally understandable position. You know, a lot of Western countries or countries with a lot of money don't have to deal with that as much because we just have more resources to have public health and sanitation, but other places are really struggling. And I think it's totally understandable and valid for them to be focused on the issues that are really pressing for them. And we really need to be cognizant of that and sympathetic to that if we're going to work together with those countries to build a safer world. And so we have to understand their perspective that is very valid. And I think as part of that, there's also just different threat perceptions. I think there are a lot of countries view deliberate bio threats as a sort of problem of the U.S. or a problem of the West, as this sort of invented problem that's not as significant in their minds as, as we view it in the West. And so it's just different threat perceptions you know, I think part of that is also they don't have as advanced bioscience and biotechnology infrastructure and they would like to have it. (laughs) And so for them, a priority is developing that infrastructure. That's step one. Step two is reducing the risk associated with it, but they want to have the infrastructure to begin with. So I think that there's a lot going on. And part of this is just a north-south divide issue.
0: Okay. So that's a bunch about the verification and and the Biological Weapons Convention. Let's talk now about attribution? Because I suppose, uh, yeah, a really important part of giving countries incentives not to do dangerous things is that we need to be able to identify after the fact yes. who has done something wrong, uh, like where a pathogen has come from, if it's if it was caused by human action. sure. So there can be some consequences. What mechanisms are there currently for attributing the sources of, of, of new diseases?
1: The two major tools that are in place right now, one of them resides within the World Health Organization and the World Health Organization has a strong comparative advantage in investigating the origins of naturally emerging infectious disease outbreaks, epidemics and pandemics. The UN system also has the UN Secretary General's mechanism, which has the authority to investigate allegations of deliberate misuse of biological weapons, meaning bioweapons attacks. One thing I'll say about WHO is, you know, in light of everything that's been going on right now, the controversies about the origins of COVID, WHO has been working in earnest to make their capabilities more robust to deal with these edge cases that sort of where the origins are uncertain and you know i think a lot of people in who would stress that the international health regulations which provide them with their authorities also give them the authority to investigate or you know origins of events that are not natural in origin I think that part of the issue there is a capabilities gap. So the WHO, I think even in recent weeks, has been working very publicly to set up this new science advisory group on the origins of novel pathogens. Uh, the acronym is SAGO, S-A-G-O. And I think just today they announced the members of this advisory group, which are you know scientists from around the world. I think that's great. I really applaud WHO's efforts to expand the scope of their work in this area. I believe that this group will be advisory in nature which is valuable, and I believe notwithstanding WHO's valiant work (laughs) to expand its capabilities, there's still a gap between what WHO can do and what their capabilities are and could become in the near future and what the secretary general's mechanism can do. And so what I mean by that is there's a sort of area in between where if there's an allegation of an accident, so for example, the secretary general's mechanism is not their authorities do not cover accidents. It's only allegations of deliberate misuse. Or if you're just not sure if it was a natural or deliberate or an accident, and you need to kind of run it to ground, and you're not prepared to make an accusation and sort of launch the Secretary General's mechanism, but there's enough evidence there that you think that something fishy might be going on, we don't really have a robust tool right now to address those sort of questions. So we started our work on this problem in the context of our work at NTI long before the sort of current controversies emerge, But I think the current challenges highlight this gap and the need to make UN systems and capabilities more robust to address this sort of in-between zone.
0: Okay, so just to recap, we've got the World Health Organization. And I guess, historically, their expertise, the thing they've done the most of, is investigating natural new pandemics, where, you know, it's, it's come from an animal or something. Yeah. And in principle, you're saying the international health rules allow them to investigate other things as well, like, I guess, bioweapons or accidental lab leaks and so on. But at least to date, that hasn't been something that they've done very much. Uh, so, we're, so we're not sure how that would pan out. Then you've got the Secretary General of the UN is able to, if, if a state accuses another state of using a bioweapon deliberately, then the Secretary General can order an investigation into that. Correct. But this means there's various gaps. So lab leaks, a pandemic where you're not sure, was it from a lab? Was it a weapon? Was it a, is it an actual pandemic? it's kind of not clear who's exactly responsible for figuring that out and whether anyone in particular who could be called on has the expertise necessary to really investigate that and build a global consensus around it. Yeah, I guess so. I guess that's the main gap that we have. Or are there others as well?
1: Yeah, that's right. And so the way that you've characterized it is accurate. And so it's not only that we haven't identified who would be in charge, but also we haven't identified a process that everyone agrees on for handling this. So... So that's basically where we are today. And it's, it's abundantly clear, in my view, from the ongoing controversy and the struggles of various countries in the international community to find a clear answer to the question of the origins of COVID. What's the potential solution to this, do you think? Yeah. So this is something that we have been working on at NTI Bio for a while. There's a concept that we're developing, which we've named the Joint Assessment Mechanism Joint, because we think it would be sort of working at the interface of WHO and the UN. And that it would live within the UN system. So this would be part of, you know, if, if international organizations that already exist, is we're thinking about creating a new mechanism, not a new organization. And so we think that this should be transparent. It should be internationally credible. It should be evidence-based and scientifically sound. You know, I think a lot of the features of the Secretary General's mechanism could be applicable here. We'd want a team of investigators that have the right technical expertise, as well as like logistic support teams that could be deployed on short notice. To wherever their effort is needed. We would need a laboratory network that could analyze samples, conduct analysis, and come to scientific conclusions that would be defensible and credible in the eyes of the international community. We'd probably also want to think about when these earlier mechanisms were established, technology hadn't evolved as much as it has today. And so there are a lot of modern bioscience, biotechnology, bioinformatics tools that we could bring to bear and think on this sort of problem set and think about whether or not those could help us uncover the truth either through on-site collection of evidence or through remote assessment of data that can be collected remotely. I mean, there are a lot of questions about how you can bring these tools to bear. And I think we have a lot of technical work to figure out how to do that. I think the other piece here, though, is figuring out where you house it. Would this sit within the UN? Where? Who would be in charge of it? How do you fund it sustainably? How do you make sure it works? How do you establish the authority? So there's a ton of work to be done We're actively engaged in international conversations with partners to figure out the answers to those questions. And we're really pushing to try to make this a reality because we think it would be valuable.
0: Okay, so imagining that I'm a national leader of a country that for whatever reason is considering having a bioweapons program. Basically, the problem is that at the moment, although I might worry that if something leaked from this lab and caused a global catastrophe, everyone might figure out that it was me and I'll get in a huge amount of trouble, I could potentially reassure myself that Looking at history, the investigation into where a new pathogen came from might be a real disaster. It might not might not be organized very well. And so there's a good chance that no one will figure out that it originated from this country and was my fault. So that might make me more likely to initiate the research uh, program in the first place. And to plug that gap, we want to create a new joint assessment mechanism where if we're unsure where a new pathogen came from and it's possible that it's the result of human action possibly violating the the biological weapons convention then kind of the right people can very promptly look into that and gather the evidence necessary to convince everyone one way or the other i guess there's various design elements that you're going to have to choose in constructing how this joint assessment mechanism is going to work like who triggers it? Like, do you need to prove anything in order to trigger it? And who chooses who goes on to the investigation committee? Presumably, would we'll be quite contested at the time. As we've seen with investigations around COVID, it, it could be substantially worse if the pandemic was worse. How are you going about kind of choosing those design parameters?
1: So I think you raise some really important questions and, and absolutely the design parameters of how this mechanism is established are going to be crucial to its success or to its failure, hopefully the former. So in terms of triggering the mechanism, that is a critically important question and something that we're thinking about very deeply as we work with our colleagues to shape this. We've got to set the bar at the right level. If we set the bar too high and the requirements for triggering it are too onerous, then there's a risk that this this mechanism might never be triggered, even in cases where it would be appropriate to do so or be useful. So we don't want to have too onerous of a bureaucratic burden. On the other hand, you don't want to set the bar too low. It's really easy to trigger this. The other failure mode is that you have uh, frivolous investigations triggered for frivolous purposes or political purposes, and it undermines the credibility of it. And then it's also not useful. So you really want to hit the sweet spot in the middle. And we're working really hard to figure out what that is. And so that's a really important question. We don't have the answer yet, but we I agree that that's really critically important we have some ideas. And so we'll tell you more when we know more.
0: <laughs> yeah. I guess that, that's the kind of detail that needs to be negotiated between concerned parties, I guess. You don't want to come in with your, like, it has to be this way.
1: <laughs> yeah. That's why we're working with international partners. I mean, honestly, a lot of this work is 5% inspiration and 95% perspiration, by which I mean, you know, you have idea generation and then you really have to build support for it. And so I think this is a classic example of that. Yeah. And then in terms of the group of experts that get deployed, Absolutely. We've seen recently that that can be a politicized process. I think to the extent that you can define the rules and the experts in advance so that you're not making decisions during a crisis, the more likely it is you'll be able to insulate the process from politics. So, you know, our vision is that you would have a roster of experts that would be determined during peacetime. They would need to be trained. They would need to be certified. They would need to take tests to prove that they're competent. And those people ideally would have to have the right scientific and technical skills. They have to understand how to do their jobs and what the standard operating procedures are. And they have to prove that on a periodic basis. And they have to be able to travel to the field in the event that that's actually part of the process. And so if you have this roster of experts in place in practice, then you already have a defined list of people from whom you have to choose. And then you can also have a established criteria in advance. So you need X people with this set of expertise and Y people with that set of expertise. And you just define as much as you can a priori. So that while there inevitably will be political pressures, we're hoping to remove some of that and insulate the process from some of that to make it more evidence-based and credible.
0: Are there any other design choices that you've thought about that would have to be, you know, I've figured out if this were taken forward?
1: You know, I think where... The mechanism would be housed is also really important. Our growing feeling is it would be a really good idea to place it under the authority of the secretary general. You know, that's linked to the ability to trigger it because if the secretary general has the authority to trigger the UN secretary general's mechanism. And they are advised by a group of expert advisors. I think, well, we as a group think that something similar in this case would be useful for a number of reasons. I'm not gonna be able to get to all of them now, but one is sort of, we believe that that's a good place for having the right threshold for triggering Also, the U.N. Secretary General sits in a very high-level position across the U.N. system and related organizations, and so they are in a position where they could pull together all sorts of different capabilities and resources across the U.N. system, which would be needed for, for this kind of process. And that they're in a good position to work with WHO, which is a critical player and has critical expertise. And also the UN Secretary General just has a lot of credibility as a role that sort of rises above the fray and can work in the best interest of the international community. So politically, it also just makes a lot of sense. So that's where we are right now. It's not set in stone, but that's the direction we're leaning and we feel good about that direction and there's support for it.
0: You mentioned that, of course, there's this existing Secretary General's mechanism, which they can put into action if a country formally accuses another country of having used a bioweapon. As far as I know, that's never been used for bioweapons, although it has been for chemical weapons. Correct. Should we have confidence that that process would be good if it ever were, uh, if if we ever were forced to, to use it?
1: You mean the Secretary General's mechanism specifically? Yeah. So I think we as an international community should be putting a lot more resources into the Secretary General's mechanism to bolster its operational capabilities. Likewise, they have a roster of experts. They have a network of laboratories. They do run tests and exercises pretty regularly. I do think if tomorrow they were called upon to launch an investigation, they could do it. But I would have more confidence in their ability to do it if we put a lot more resources into that work. Right now, it's supported through a variety of voluntary contributions from from countries that think this is really important. My guess is we should probably multiply the amount of money that we put into this by five to tenfold, (laughs) and it should be a much higher priority. And, you know, I, I have a lot of colleagues in the field who I think are doing really important work to strengthen the secretary general's mechanism And I'm really grateful to them for the work that they're doing. And I would love to support that more if I had more time. (laughs) The other thing I would say is, you know, generally speaking for these kinds of mechanisms, and this is true of the joint assessment mechanism concept that we are working to develop as well, is that, you know, the more that you can regularly exercise and test the mechanism, the more confidence you'll have in it. And so if we could do really robust, comprehensive exercises to test the efficacy Of the UN Secretary General's mechanism and the Joint Assessment Mechanism, if and when it's created, I think that is the way to have confidence that these mechanisms are effective. And by the way, I think one point that I didn't stress before—that if you know—in terms of design choices, just going back to your question about design choices, I think the other thing I wanted to stress that I think is important is we don't want. This new mechanism that we're talking about, the joint assessment mechanism, to be a completely isolated pillar that's fully standalone from what WHO can do and what the secretary general's mechanism can do. We don't want to have bureaucratic competition between these different mechanisms. We would love them to be mutually reinforcing. And if there are resources from these other existing mechanisms that we could sort of build into the joint assessment mechanism, all the better. I think it's you know a complicated set of questions that we'd have to answer in figuring out how to do that. But I think there's a lot of benefit to having these mechanisms be mutually reinforcing. And if, in fact, by creating this joint assessment mechanism, drawing resources to that work, if that could also, in parallel, strengthen the Secretary General's mechanism, that would be fabulous. That would be a win-win. So it's
0: an interesting situation. You're like quite a credible international organization focused on these issues. And you have this idea for a new mechanism that maybe the UN should put in place to plug this gap in in their systems.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: What steps do you take? Who do you call up? What do you write?
1: So we have done a couple of international meetings to sort of socialize the idea And solicit feedback. And we bring together a diverse community of stakeholders that can help us think this through. So some of these people are scientists that understand the technical elements and the technical questions we're trying to answer. Some of them are policymakers um, and decision makers who sit in various governments and would ultimately have to decide if they support this. Some of them are people who have a lot of experience working in the UN system who understand how the UN system works, and it can help us sort of shape something that makes sense. And so there are a lot of different stakeholders we bring together and we ask them questions. We say, well, we would like to do X. What do you think? And they say, either we support it or how about try Y? And so that's an iterative process of soliciting feedback, building the idea, socializing it again, and working to build support. So we're in the middle of that process. One of the reasons I have more confidence that, that I think we have a good chance of success is we have an... You know, so I'm working on this project in earnest, but also working in partnership with Angela Kane, who is on our team as the Sam Nunn Distinguished Fellow at NTI. And she used to be the head of the UN Office for Disarmament Affairs, and so she understands how the UN system works. She she oversaw a lot of related work, and she has a ton of knowledge and credibility in international community. And her involvement in this work is really helping us advance this concept, socialize it, and sort of develop more sophisticated ideas. So that's, you know, I just wanted to give a shout out to Angela and to thank her for the work and and just to say how thrilled we are to work with her. In terms of next steps, you know, we have some working groups that we've established and that we're going to launch in the coming weeks. One is focused on technical questions and one is focused on these sort of policy and institutional questions. So we can dig into some of these key points that you and I have been discussing, you know, how do you design it, what are the design features, how do you establish the authority? And we hope at some point in the future that we can get to a point where we can actually establish the authority and get the critical mass of states parties in the international community to say, yes, we would like this authority to exist, and we will vote to support it. And so that's what we're working towards now is a really interesting political window of opportunity. It's not an academic question. It's a very real question that's at the forefront of a lot of people's minds. The COVID pandemic has really drawn a lot of attention to these issues and created political space to drive significant change in international biosecurity and pandemic preparedness architecture we see an opportunity to seize the moment and we really want to go for it because we think it could make us safer. And so that's why we're pushing now.
0: Yeah. Okay. We'll push on to creating consequences for, for violators in a second, but um, sure. this, this will be sad if I don't ask this question. It, it's okay. slightly not the point. I'm slightly reluctant to ask it, but uh, yeah, here but, we go. But, but people will be too okay. sad. Yeah. COVID-19, <laughs> what, what do you think? Natural pandemic or, uh, or might it be a lab leak?
1: So I think the bottom line up front is we just don't know. You know, I think my personal view is that it's most likely to be a naturally occurring event. But I think both hypotheses, like naturally occurring or accidentally released, are plausible. And we just don't have enough information to rule out one or the other. And I really hope that we get to the bottom of it, because I think that has value. And I'm glad to see the U.S. government and countries around the world pushing to find an answer. But we might never have a definitive answer But what I would say is that just the fact that enough people around the world think it's plausible that there could be a catastrophic global pandemic caused by a laboratory accident, I think, points towards the future of what we need to do. If we really think that's a credible risk, we should be taking much more dramatic steps than we have been taking to reduce the risk that that could happen. Some of that has to do with biosafety strengthening and some of that has to do with governance of dual-use bioscience research, which I know we'll talk about in a few minutes. You know, in terms of how that has shaped our ability to create change – I think it's sort of a double-edged sword. I think in one way, it has opened up important conversations and gotten people in senior leadership positions to be asking really serious questions about how we safeguard bioscience and biotechnology and guard against these risks. And that's incredibly valuable. It's been very interesting to see that and have the opportunity to use the moment to drive change. On the other hand, it's also created some polarization and some very politicized discourse around these issues, which we find incredibly unhelpful we're always pushing to have evidence-based, science-based discussions and to stay away from the politicization, which we don't think is helpful. So it's complicated, but that's how I see it.
0: Yeah. What should the consequence be for a country that leaks a terrible pathogen from a military lab or some other secret research lab?
1: I don't have an immediate answer to that question. I think the question of accountability for those kinds of events or deliberate attack is a really important one. And I'm not even sure that punitive consequences are the right answer in the case of an accidental release if there's not malicious intent or a violation. And if it was just a legitimate research project and there's been an accident, I think we should think about whether we should support the country in question, or, you know, whether punitive approaches are the right ones. So I think it's a it's a tough question. It's a different matter if there's an accidental release and it's found to be coming from a lab that was pursuing bioweapons development. I think that's a different matter. And it seems appropriate to consider the question of a sort of accountability and punitive consequences. But I don't have a clear answer for what that should be. And I think we need to do more work to figure out the answers to those questions.
0: Yeah. As an economist, the thing that jumps to mind to me is I'm thinking about the probability of detection multiplied by how bad the consequence would be for for a country if them causing a terrible pandemic were detected. (laughs) And so I'm like, you think like, if the probability of detection is low, they need to make sure that the consequences are very bad. And I suppose if the probability of of catching a criminal, so to speak, is high, then maybe you don't need to have such a severe penalty in order to make sure that countries are sufficiently discouraged from doing it. I suppose just in the international realm, it's hard to think about things like this because we're talking about... Issues of like military conflict, potentially, or like serious conflict between countries. It's, it's very serious business rather than just like criminal justice policy.
1: Yeah. It's hard to divorce the answer to this question from politics. And fundamentally, it will be a very political discussion if and when it does come up. And I would say that there are a variety of different kinds of accountability measures that you could think about. Some of them could be financial, some of them could be diplomatic, you know, isolation from the international community, some of them could be more military. And I think. It's a really tough question to answer, and I think you would want it to, the response to be proportional. And also you would want to make sure that you weren't creating a system that had undesired outcomes or like perverse incentives. And so you don't want to think about that really hard. I think the other thing that's worth thinking about also is just the reputational cost to a country if a significant portion of the international community thinks that they're responsible for it. Even if it's uncertain, there's significant cost to international prestige and reputational risks It is in itself a, a pretty heavy cost. So that's also worth bearing in mind.
0: Is there any kind of political policy or legal agenda around this issue of creating consequences for violating? Not at the moment. No. Okay. I see. Interesting. I suppose that would be in principle part of the biological weapons convention, but it's just like, it's not in practice being pursued at the moment.
1: Yeah. I just think it's a really hard question and a one that is not being tackled. And I've asked people about it as part of my research and their answer is generally that it would be really hard to do. And it's a very political question and it really depends on. Who were the players involved, and what's their relationship to the existing superpowers at the time? Right, right, right. Very challenging, but important.
0: Okay, we've been talking about states here. Turning for a minute to the more traditional terrorist WMD threat. How much can we just rely on traditional security enforcement by, you know, law enforcement, intelligence agencies, the FBI, Interpol, and that kind of thing to detect plots, to use biological weapons, and catch or kill or, or at least disrupt the terrorists who are trying to do that?
1: So I think I would love to see a future where I could answer that question and saying, we've got it covered. We can definitely rely on our security community to solve that problem. I just don't think we're there. I don't think we've invested the time and resources to sort of have the sort of tools and mechanisms in place to do that well. You know, I do think now, partially in in response to COVID, a lot of these communities are revisiting this question and thinking about bolstering intelligence, bolstering law enforcement. I think we also need stronger connections between law enforcement and the scientific community and the public health community so that they can get better information about what's going on. I also think a lot of the work that we're doing at NTI about strengthening governance of dual-use bioscience and biotechnology research and development could help strengthen those tools, and, and this all needs to be interconnected. You know, part of the problem is a is needle in the haystack issue.
0: Same issue with, with all terrorism, really.
1: Perhaps. You know, there's so much legitimate bioscience and biotechnology research and development going on around the world. And it's so deeply dual use that it's very hard to discern malicious intent or malicious action from that mountain of legitimate activity. It's not that it can't be done, but we have to set up more effective structures for doing that. And again, I think, you know, the security sector, the various parts of the security sector that you mentioned, all need to invest a lot more resources and capabilities to get us to the future where we need to be. And we need to build better tools in the science and technology policy sector and the governance place to sort of enable those security sector agencies to plug into so we can have a whole system that works. So it's a really hard nut to crack and it can't be solved in isolation. I think these other governance approaches that I think we're going to talk about in a few minutes are a critical piece. And without that, it'll be really hard for them to be effective.
0: Yeah, I guess this potentially kind of a domestic policy agenda issue that someone could pursue in the U.S. or the U.K. or Australia, trying to improve the security capabilities to check up on what terrorists are doing or 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 be more aware of what plots uh, terrorist organizations might be pursuing. Is, Is is that right? I guess this is more maybe at the national level than the UN level.
1: So I think that there's both national level work and international work that could be done. So you know I think individual governments within their respective intelligence and security agencies would need to you know build up more capabilities to do this work more effectively. Interpol has a really interesting role to play because they are sort of the internet, they're like the connecting point for law enforcement and security apparatuses in different countries all around the world. And so Interpol, I think, also has an opportunity to strengthen their capabilities as well. And I think that they are in fact doing that and I applaud them and that, you know, we want to support their efforts. So I think that, you know, the two places where this lives in my mind most prominently are Interpol and within individual governments.
0: Okay, moving on from shaping intent, NTI has uh, a vision for this other comprehensive package of interventions that hopefully collectively could make it a lot harder for anyone to deliberately or accidentally produce or or release a a really dangerous pathogen. So you call this uh, constraining capabilities. And I guess it's what you think is the main thing to do in the case of individuals or terrorist groups or laboratories that are at risk of making a terrible mistake that affects everyone. And I guess I came into this preparing for this interview pretty pessimistic that any of this could work. Because my sense is that the technology is progressing so fast that even if you can slow down access a bit, just dangerous techniques will ultimately end up being available to people all over the world pretty fast anyway. Maybe to start out, can you tell me why I should be more optimistic that we really can constrain the ability of people to do dangerous things with biotech?
1: Sure. I mean, I think, So I understand why this is challenging to sort of wrap your brain around. And I think a lot of people are challenged by thinking about this in this new way. Part of the reason for that is that the MO we've seen so far has been very slow movement on the part of large institutions that make decisions slowly, including governments, including international organizations, and they really play a vital role. I think the way that we need to keep up with rapid advances in bioscience and biotechnology is by partnering with the very organizations that are driving those advances and move at that pace. And so I think the reason we can succeed is if we're working with the same scientists and academic research institutions and companies and funders and publishers that are driving the advances. If we build in biosecurity within to the very processes by which the technology is developed, I think that we have a, a real chance at staying ahead of the curve. And so I think it's a combination of working with these more agile, fast-moving groups. And then I think it's also being proactive and not reactive. So instead of responding to a new threat after it emerges and, and sort of preparing a patch, if we look over the horizon and see what's coming and proactively build in new biosecurity systems before new capabilities come online, I think we can keep up. So I think a classic example of this is in the DNA synthesis screening domain. So the community of DNA synthesis providers, most of which are companies, they voluntarily screen DNA synthesis orders in order to make sure the pieces of DNA, which are the building blocks of of all living things, the sort of building blocks of dangerous pathogens don't fall into the hands of malicious actors. And so they're able to, you know, they're pretty technologically sophisticated. They're able to evolve their screening capabilities as technology advances I think the example of looking over the horizon is benchtop synthesis. So that's this new mode where instead of centralized DNA synthesis, you have this future, which we think is coming soon, where people might be able to print DNA on their benchtop. And not everyone's going to do that, but a part of the market is going there. And so I think, you know, what we're thinking about at NTI and what the benchtop synthesis development community is thinking about is how do we build in biosecurity by design and make that a reality before these tools are disseminated widely. And so I think that's a classic example of how you stay ahead of the curve and you don't let the technology get out ahead of you before the security is built in. And we need to do that across the board. So before
0: we get a bit confused, we're mostly talking here about working with legitimate labs and companies and so on to constrain the capabilities of malicious actors. That's right. How does all this connect with bioweapons in particular?
1: Yeah, thank you. No, I think it's good to zoom out and sort of talk about the big picture before we get into the nitty gritty details of the actions. So, you know, what we're trying to do is prevent two types of big risks. One is we want to prevent malicious actors like rogue actors from exploiting the legitimate global bioscience and biotechnology research and development enterprise that they could use to make it easier for them to develop a biological weapon and carry out an attack. That's one huge piece of this. The other piece is we also want to prevent catastrophic lab accidents. So we want to make sure you want to reduce the possibility or reduce the risk that there could be an accidental laboratory release of an engineered pathogen that could have catastrophic consequences. So those are two big pieces that we're after in our work to strengthen governance of bioscience and biotechnology.
0: Okay, so so NTI's theory here is that there's no silver bullet as, as, as you were saying yeah so we kind of need a we need a full court press on all, all of the different mechanisms that we can use to lower the risk incrementally and I guess there's various different intervention points that you've identified uh, where potentially you can do that and I think broadly speaking the intervention points or the or, or the groups that you can work with are funders institutional research oversight groups there's legal regulators suppliers of all kinds of different materials that are necessary for a project to go ahead and then finally publishers yeah have I got that picture right
1: Yeah, that's great. And let me just uh, unpack that a little bit. So we don't believe that there's a single silver bullet. There's no one action we can take that will reduce the risk to zero or near zero. And so we really believe in a layered defense and and that there are multiple intervention points throughout the bioscience and biotechnology research and development lifecycle. And we want to go as upstream as possible. So it begins at the funding and project conception stage. It progresses through research execution, either at an academic facility or in a company it involves the acquisition of goods and services like DNA and getting pathogen samples from pathogen repository. These are all things that you need to get in order to do your work if you're a scientist. And then it goes on to publication and or commercialization. So there are different groups that control these different points. And each of those points is an opportunity for risk reduction that I think is meaningful.
0: Nice. Let's go one by one and maybe uh, tackle funders first. Sure. What's the current situation with respect to funders about how they think about the risks of the work that they're potentially actually paying for?
1: Yeah. So I think the best I can say about the funding landscape with regard to biosecurity is that it's fragmented. So there's sort of a separation between public and private funders. When I say public funders, I mean governments. So governments fund, including in the US and in a lot of other countries, fund a lot of bioscience and biotechnology development, some of them have controls in place to do some sort of biosecurity review and dual-use review before they decide to award a grant or a contract, and others don't. And even within the are you know within the United States government, there's a lot of differences of opinion about how stringent those review processes are. And some people think that U.S. government processes are not as stringent as they should be. And then that's not to mention other countries, you know, that have a variety of different provisions. And based on what we found in the Global Health Security Index, I would argue that there is a lot of work to be done both in the U.S. and and internationally to really strengthen those review processes. Then you look at the private sector. So some of that is going to be philanthropic funding, also a major driver of bioscience and biotechnology research and development. And some of it is sort of private sector investors at various stages of startups or, you know, bigger companies. Philanthropies, again, are also, they have different views. I mean, I think some philanthropies, including the Open Philanthropy Project, care a lot about biosecurity. And, you know, my experience is that before they decide to fund something, they think really hard about what the biosecurity implications are of that project going ahead. There are other philanthropies where that's not really at the forefront. Obviously, no philanthropic organization wants to be funding something that's going to be a problem, but they don't necessarily explicitly have processes in place that we're aware of. And so it's just kind of ad hoc and fragmented in their holes. When you look at the private sector, also very patchy. We actually, as part of our work, spent some time talking to funders at various early stages of investment. And I think we have more work to do there. I think at least startup investors feel that it's sort of kind of too early in the process. You know, when a company is nascent, it's not the right time. It's when it's a bigger company and they know they should deal with it then. Other private investors told us that they said they're happy to ask the companies they invest in to comply with anything that's like required from a regulatory perspective, but they're not going to ask them to do anything that's above and beyond what's absolutely legally required because they don't want them to be at a competitive disadvantage. And in general, I think we still have a lot of work to do to convince private funders that it's in their interest and that there's a value proposition for doing biosecurity screening. Something that we're thinking about at NTI is a biosecurity funders compact. We want to sort of take this fragmented landscape that I've described, get all these different funders to pledge, say, hey, you know, we're going to take biosecurity really seriously. With our funding going forward, we're going to put processes in place, and we're going to prioritize this as part of our review process. We want to get that pledge in place, and we want to help these various funders develop processes that will meaningfully screen So that's something we would like to see moving forward as we continue to do our work. But again, it's a pretty heavy lift and there's a lot of work to do.
0: Yeah, I just saw this topic in the news a couple of days ago, actually. The New Yorker put out this piece where, among other things, they had this story about the Wuhan Institute for Virology applying for research funding from DARPA. To, uh, insert a furin cleavage site into, into bat coronaviruses. This, is, this was a couple of years ago and they were turned down and, and there's no, no clear evidence that this, that this actually uh, went ahead. But apparently the DARPA reviewers, they didn't just know want to fund it. They were like shocked and dismayed apparently by how irresponsible they thought this project was. So I guess there evidently is in some organizations like an awareness of these issues. I suppose DARPA is directly connected with security. So they're unusually uh, front of the mind for them. But yeah, I suppose we kind of just want all funders to be thinking along these lines of thinking about how could things go wrong.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I think DARPA is a really interesting example. And what I'll say about them is that, you know, there have been some really forward leaning people who have worked in DARPA in the office that funds bioscience and biotechnology who are very concerned about these risks. And they have put processes in place exactly for this reason. And I think the example you're citing is an example of a process working well. And, you know, I don't know the details of that process or the details of that specific grant proposal. So I'm not going to comment on that. But generally, I agree with you. I think we would really like all major funders across the board to be prioritizing this issue and have a process in place and make and one that makes sense and that like meaningfully screens. And the other thing I should share is that like it's not just about good intentions. Like having a process that meaningfully screens projects from like way, correctly weighs benefits and risks is really hard, right? It's not a trivial question. There's not an obvious answer. And so there's a lot of work just to be done there, and I think in addition to calling on funders to do this better, we should also help them devise processes that work.
0: So this question shows up on almost uh, every one of these groups. To what extent is it a lack of people wanting or like caring about these issues versus their ability to do it? Because as a funder, you know, you've got limited resources yourself, hiring the necessary expertise to figure out whether a grant passes a risk benefit analysis, maybe, maybe you just can't find the folks or it's hard to pay for that. Is it capabilities that's the main issue or, or like motivation or drive?
1: I would say for the most part, I think it carries across all these different groups Capabilities are a major constraint that it's just hard to do these things well, and that these various groups will be more effective if we can help them build tools and systems that will help them screen more effectively at the respective points. And so I think we should approach these different communities as our allies that need support. And that we should offer them resources and assistance with building capabilities. I'm not saying that everyone across the board in all these groups is gung-ho. And there are certain cases where we need to convince people that this should be a priority, where either they don't see a value proposition or they don't share our risk perceptions. You know, I think there are some exceptions where people are worried that these kinds of controls could perhaps stymie important progress in science and technology and it overweights the biosecurity or biosafety risks and that we don't have the threat assessment or risk assessment quite right. And so I think there's more work to be done to talk to parts of this community that are skeptical so we can come to a shared view on like how you thread the needle there. But generally speaking, I think helping with capabilities is a long pole in the tent.
0: Even if someone isn't as concerned about biosecurity as you and I are, if you make it easier for them to do it, then they might be more willing to buy into it because you're just not asking so much of them. Is there any process that you would like to see broadly taken up, or is it just going to depend on the organization and the kind of things that they're that they're working on?
1: You know, for each of these different points that we've been talking about, funders, oversight, providers of goods and services and publication, I think each of them is going to have to have their own set of processes. I imagine that there is synergy here. And if you figure out how to do one process well, you could probably learn from that in other parts of this sort of life cycle that I'm talking about. But I think each of these nodes needs a slightly different setup.
0: To what extent do we need to train just tons, hundreds, thousands of people who are capable of doing this kind of risk benefit analysis? Like Maybe that's a key bottleneck.
1: You know, we probably do need more people. I don't exactly know how many. We haven't done a sort of back of the envelope calculation about how many people it would take to do this well. I think the first step is figuring out, like getting institutional buy-in to do the risk benefit analysis and figuring out what that risk benefit analysis process looks like and developing a meaningful process. I think that's step one, buy-in and process. And then once we figure that out, then we can populate the positions.
0: So the next group of people are the folks who provide oversight and approval for research to go ahead in both commercial and academic uh, facilities. I suppose maybe it's a similar picture here, but how is that group performing on a biosecurity perspective at the moment?
1: You know, I have more visibility to what's going on into academic research institutions, and I have less understanding of what's going on in private companies. So within academic facilities, at least in the United States and in a lot of parts of the US, the West, there are oversight committees that largely do biosafety-related oversight. And some of those groups also do biosecurity, but most of them don't, because we haven't really defined what it means to do biosecurity review.
0: Maybe we should just define biosecurity versus biosafety, because <laughs> they're surprisingly different.
1: Yeah, so biosafety, as I would define, and I think as we would have defined an NTI, is preventing accidental release of biological agents or pathogens from the lab either through some sort of physical failure of equipment or through some human that gets infected and spreads it um, by human-to-human contact. So the biosafety is meant to prevent that. Biosecurity is preventing the exploitation of the legitimate enterprise by malicious actors. And so in my view, it's sort of preventing the dissemination of info hazards that create a roadmap to make it easier for people to engineer or create a pathogen, or preventing people from getting the materials that that they could use in order to make a pathogen. It's preventing them from getting access to facilities where they might be able to use those facilities to make something nasty. It's those kinds of things. So it's preventing exploitation for weapons purposes.
0: So... Labs and institutions and universities more often think about biosafety. They think about how their staff could get sick more than the broader global picture of how do we prevent terrible things from happening.
1: Well, I mean, I think biosafety encompasses accidental release that could spread into the community in addition to sort of occupational safety issues. Biosafety is an idea that has an institutional history. There's a process. It has broader international support and it's very clearly defined. Biosecurity just isn't as well developed what it means to do that and what are the control measures you put in place to reduce those risks. That just doesn't have as broad international support. It doesn't have the institutional history and it doesn't have the institutional infrastructure. So, you know, in terms of what it means to strengthen biosecurity at various institutions, I mean, I think one way to think about it is you take the existing biosafety infrastructure at universities and you make sure that those groups of people have the expertise and resources to also do biosecurity review. And you make sure that, you know, you should try to get that to be shared internationally. You know, I think there's work to be done here in developing what those practices are. And as part of our efforts at NTI, we're also working with the group at Stanford with uh, leadership from Megan Palmer. She's thinking a lot about these questions. How do we share information across different communities to figure out how to do this better? Because I think there's a lot of learning we need to do as a community to do that well. But yeah, I mean, I would say like my understanding is a lot of this is going on in the United States and the West and in other countries, I'm less sure. And then we have to help our partners in other countries build more robust infrastructure. NTI has engaged a lot of projects to help train people, experts in other countries to do this well and to build that infrastructure. And so there's a lot of willingness. But they, you know, again, these people are allies and partners and they need help and they need resources. In terms of companies, we definitely want to see similar infrastructure there, but I don't have as much visibility into what's going on right now. I would assume they're taking some precautions at the very least to meet their legal requirements and probably going above and beyond that, because they don't, you know, their enlightened self-interest is to avoid catastrophic accidents or <laughs> other mishaps.
0: I hope, yeah, I hope they perceive it that way. Yeah. If you're the safety person at a, at a university, or I suppose a company as well, but let, let's talk about a university. It seems like you're in a tricky spot because you're constantly asking all of your colleagues to do this burdensome work in order to have something be safer. And maybe you're turning down their applications to conduct some research, and they're going to be in your face <laughs> all the time being being frustrated by this. There's a bunch of work on your, on your part to, to actually do your job well while the kind of catastrophes that we're trying to prevent happen hopefully almost never. And Jamie Yassif isn't going to be talking to the administrator here who's who's making these decisions explaining why it's so important to maintain a hard line, even when it's it's annoying for staff. Is there anything that can be done about that bias, I suppose, that that creates?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think all the incentive structures within the academic and perhaps the commercial research space are kind of perverse and misaligned with a safer future. I think there's a lot of incentives for researchers to raise funds, to do things that are provocative, to get them in the media, to do things that get them publications. And currently, there's not a lot of institutional pressures or drivers that would incentivize a scientist not to do something risky or to redesign their experiment to do it in a safer way. So there's a lot of incentives to push for sort of pathbreaking work and not a lot of incentives to be cautious or it might be in the interests of their country or the international community. I also think that, you know, we have a lot of work to do in partnership with various scientific societies and communities to try to sync up with them on risk perceptions. You know, I think one of the challenges here is a lot of people in the scientific community genuinely believe that it's really important to advance their research in order to find innovative solutions that are going to solve societal problems. Anything we do that slows them down is really going to hold society back and has a net loss for everyone. And that there's a different risk perception than what we have. And I think Carl Schulman talked about this also when he had his podcast with you, and I agree with him. The biosecurity community has a different risk perception, and we see the balance of these two issues slightly differently. And so part of the reason the institutional structures are set up the way that they are, the way that I'm describing, is because... Uh, There's just different views about what we need to prioritize. I mean, I guess it is sort of goes back to the like sort of the fact that these are tail risks that, you know, it doesn't happen a lot. And so people don't perceive the risks in the same ways. And it leads them to different conclusions about how much of process we should put in place to make sure that research is safe and secure. So this shows up
0: again and again that one of the reasons not everyone is doing what we want is that they don't actually share our perception about how probable these possibilities are and how severe they would be if if they happen. Mm
1: hmm. Yeah. To to
0: what extent can we just do a lot of good by kind of winning the argument that these things are disturbingly probable and they would be extremely bad. And so it's in everyone's enlightened interest to shift their risk benefit calculation a bit in in favor of worrying about the risks.
1: I would love to win the argument. I'm not really sure how you do that. So, I mean, if you have ideas about how we could change people's minds.
0: (laughs) Start a podcast, Jamie. (laughs)
1: We're talking about the probability of different events. People tend to develop intuitions about the probability of things based on extrapolation from the past. And to get people to sort of develop a risk perception about what the future could look like that's not an extrapolation of the past is counterintuitive. And so I think it's really hard. We could, you know, we could develop scary models about a future that could happen. You know, we could tell scary stories. Some people would find that plausible and others wouldn't. So if folks in the effective altruism community can come up with compelling ways that we can make the case that is convincing, I would be keen to hear those ideas. I mean, it's important to do it in a way that doesn't promulgate info hazards. You want to make sure you don't have people out there telling scary stories, inventing scary ways to sort of bring about a global catastrophic biological risk. That's irresponsible. And that's not what we need to do. And it's not going to be convincing anyway. And it just risky. So I'm not sure what the answer is to that. You know, part of it might just be a generational shift that over time, if young people sort of have different worldview about, you know, what are our responsibilities to each other, to our community, to our country, and to people around the world, to the long-term future, and then that weighs more heavily in terms of how they make decisions about how they go about their daily lives. If more people in the scientific community have that mindset, maybe over time that could shift. Scientists should be asking themselves questions about... What are there red lines? Like, are there things that I just shouldn't be doing? And what is the moral imperative there? And where should we draw those red lines? And this is a question David Relman, who's a professor at Stanford, has been advocating that we ask. And we talk about that a lot. And are trying to think about what the answer to that question is. I think that's the most promising answer I've thought of, is just like, can we start a a more substantive, evidence-based conversation about whether there should be red lines in this space? And if so, where do we draw them and, and what do we do about them? If we can have a real conversation with the scientific community about this and what are the moral implications of this question, maybe we can make some headway. And I think maybe that's the most promising way to really tackle this is we need to have a serious conversation about it that's focused and technical and not hand waving. We need to get, get down to it. And maybe now is a moment that we've created an opening for that conversation where that opening wasn't there before, either because it was conceived, it seemed like a, a niche academic issue that was a, a real problem, which is definitely not the case now, <laughs> or that it's just like some contrived threat that's not real. So, you know, maybe we can take advantage of this political moment to start those important conversations and drive some progress.
0: Yeah, maybe this is too cynical, but it's very hard to convince a man of something when his livelihood depends on him not believing it. And I guess, you know, we notice that people who are involved in the coal industry tend not to be too concerned about climate change. Obviously, the scientific community isn't that far off because people really do worry about these things. And there's lots of very prominent scientists who are sounding the alarm about all kinds of risks all the time. But if you're a junior scientist and you're someone's telling you that you shouldn't pursue your research because of some like very low tail risk, and you're, basically they might be asking you to give up your career or give up your probability of getting tenure at, uh, at some point by slowing you down. I guess that gives you a strong incentive to find flaws in their argument, <laughs> rightly or wrongly.
1: Well, yeah. So your point about incentive structures, I think that's why we need to change those incentive structures. We should not put people in a position where they're choosing between what's going to advance their career and their self-interest versus what's going to be the best for the future, long-term future of humanity. Like Ideally, those incentives should be pointing in the same direction, not in opposite directions.
0: I guess that's why we're talking about the funders and the journals and all these other groups who they're interact with.
1: Yeah. And it also reminds me of another project that I haven't talked about that I think is worth mentioning just as we think about changing incentive structures. And this is a little bit more nascent of an idea, and we're still working to flesh out how to make it work in practice, but it's fundamentally driven by this problem that you're talking about, that the incentive structures are not aligned. And we would love to see them become more aligned. And that leads us to this idea of like a seal of approval. And so like, I think what we'd like to see is modes of peer review within the scientific community, where either universities or research groups or individuals, its we haven't figured out how to structure it exactly, where you basically can give people or institutions a rating and say, hey, you get a gold star because you are really responsible in terms of biosecurity. And then that actually can lead to promotions or financial incentives or good standing in the community, reputational enhancement for scoring well on this evaluation criteria. Maybe it could look like lead certification. It's sort of analogous kind of thing. We're still thinking through how to structure it and it's very early days. It's very nascent. But I think we're trying to get at this incentive structure problem and try to build some sort of peer review mechanism that starts to push things in a different direction. It's really hard and it's complicated, but we're being responsive to this question you raised because I think it's really fundamental until we change that dynamic. It's, we're going to have headwinds.
0: Yeah. How likely do you think it is that you and me and our kind of fellow travelers are, are wrong about this? And maybe we're underweighting the benefits of the scientific research. And in fact, the scientists pursuing some of these projects are right that the gains of their research are, are, are so large that we shouldn't be slowing them down.
1: I mean, I think this is a really, uh, to use EA terminology, this question is a crux, right? Are we modeling the benefits correctly and are we modeling the risks correctly? And I think we should be humble and we should have some uncertainty here. You know, I think there's fundamental uncertainty about both sides here. There's fundamental uncertainty about the magnitude of a global catastrophic biological risk or a high consequence bio event happening from these kinds of activities We don't know what the order of magnitude of that risk is and what the high end of the consequences are from absolute tail risk. We just we don't know. And I think it'll be very hard for us to nail that down. On the other hand, the benefits, I don't think we are underweighting the benefits of science and technology generally. I think there is a lot of important open questions about the benefits of certain kinds of research that people are doing in the scientific community that they argue is important for anticipating future pandemics or for developing more effective countermeasures. And sometimes the arguments are like, we need to modify this pathogen in this way to make it more transmissible or to make it more virulent or to make it resistant to medical countermeasures so we can see what that threat looks like so then we can design a countermeasure for it. I'm not totally convinced by those arguments. And I feel like the onus should be on that community that's making those arguments to give more evidence. And I think that that's an important crux and I think an important point of disagreement. And I feel like the burden of, proof should be more on that community. (laughs) But I generally agree that bioscience and biotechnology is a tremendous promise. And we agree with that wholeheartedly. And I think we're not underweighting it. I would hope we're not underweighting it. But I think that these... like We
0: should keep our eye out. Yeah. Because I guess, again, even if we're not underweighting it in general, we might in some specific case, we could get things wrong. I guess, hypothetically, you could imagine some parallel world where we were really worried about the possible misuse of mRNA vaccines or something like that. And then we slowed down the development of mRNA vaccines. I guess that's the fear that some scientists have, that you would prevent something really valuable from, from being invented. I suppose it's just when we look at the individual cases, we're not super convinced that that's what's going on. Okay, so we'll dive into some of the specifics in a second, but I guess... At a high level, it seems like there's a lot of challenges leaning on all of these groups to change what they're doing. What's the mentality that you're you're bringing to this this, uh, project of uh, constraining capabilities?
1: The way that we talk about it is we want to reduce emerging biological risks associated with rapid technology advances. And we want to move quickly to keep up with the pace of these technology developments and develop meaningful solutions that reduce risks. We're thinking about tackling this really at an international level because fundamentally it's an international problem. And unless countries around the world tackle this in a comprehensive way, it's going to be hard to meaningfully address the risk. We see a gap in the current biosecurity architecture that we're hoping to fill. So there are a couple reasons for this. So first of all, countries around the world, as we saw in our Global Health Security Index, for the most part really don't have the governance, tools, and regulations in place to provide effective oversight of bioscience and biotechnology, and in particular, dual-use bioscience research and development. Our data showed that fewer than 5% of countries around the world really had evidence that they were effectively doing this. And even the United States, which has done a lot, there's a lot of room for improvement in the U.S. as well. And so that was one driver for us thinking about this. At an international level, you know, there's work going on at various institutions that's really valuable, but there's no international entity existing right now that's dedicated to reducing this set of risks that I've been talking about and taking on these specific approaches that we're discussing. So the two most visible and, in my view, valuable players in the space are the World Health Organization, which has a, a science office that's relatively new that's tackling some of these issues, and that's fantastic, and they're doing really valuable work. And likewise, the Biological Weapons Convention, the part of the UN that supports that and serves the secretariat for that convention, that convention is really important for upholding the norm against bioweapons development and use. And they're thinking about sort of technology issues that are associated with that convention, and they're trying to build up capabilities to be smarter about that and better informed. And that's fabulous. But I still think that there's a gap in the system and that these existing institutions aren't really designed or set up to address the set of issues that I've been describing. And so we at NTI are envisioning setting up a new international organization that's dedicated to biosecurity, and that would work very closely with the UN system, including the BWC and including WHO, but would be independent and would really be the home for all these different kinds of projects in an ideal future. And it would really meaningfully work to meaningfully reduce risks. You know, the vision or the mission that we're envisioning is that it would work to reduce catastrophic biological events that could be caused by a deliberate attack or an accidental release event, and that what this entity would do is that it would sort of promote stronger global norms about biosecurity and also develop tools and incentive structures to incentivize people and institutions to actually adhere to those norms. So that's the big picture. That's a lot to tackle. It's a very broad mandate. We envision that it would start pretty small with a pretty narrow focus. and, And if we can demonstrate that that works well, for example, with DNA synthesis screening, then we can sort of expand from there. So that's the vision. It's a big vision. Yeah, it's big. We're working with international partners right now to scope out what this entity would look like, its mission would be, what its scope would be, how we might structure the organization, how we might fund it, how it might connect to other parts of the international biosecurity architecture. We would ideally like to launch the organization by the end of next year, by the end of 2022. And that's a work in progress. But we're really excited about it. And we think um, it's sort of a n- relatively new approach to addressing this set of issues. That's the big picture. Is the goal
0: to get global coverage with these reforms or is it maybe primarily you care about the countries with the most advanced biotech industries? Or is it maybe just, you know, the the more countries you can bring on board uh, with some of these changes, then the better?
1: I mean, I think it's more about getting as close to global coverage as we can. certainly the highest priority is putting these governance provisions in place where there actually are risks, where the technology exists. But the, the answer, but that's changing all the time because biotechnology and bioscience is spreading to countries around the world. More and more countries see a value proposition in advancing that. And so I think in the future, there will be more countries with those capabilities. And so we just really want to get everyone on board. Sort of this idea of finding the biggest holes and plugging them. We think this is plugging a huge hole you know, we don't want to leave huge holes in the system where there are huge swaths of the globe that are just not in sync with us. And so that's the idea. We want to try to take a global approach.
0: Is the idea to get Gantos to do things through legal reforms or is it more like going around and having lots of conversations and persuading lots of different groups to plug these holes because it's the right thing to do?
1: We're trying to tackle this at various levels. I think we would like to get government buy-in. And so for governments to have guidelines in place and where it makes sense to have regulations in place... Sometimes legal requirements are effective and sometimes guidelines are effective. It's not always super simple. And then we also want to talk to communities. So publishers are sort of a globally networked community of stakeholders, funders likewise. I think the conversation we would want to have with any of the stakeholders is, is, look, it's in your enlightened self-interest to pursue this. No part of this sort of Life cycle from project conceptualization to execution to publication, like, you know, those communities don't want to be involved in causing a global catastrophic biological risk, and it's in their interest to avoid that. So, if they see a plausible path forward where they could get help to do that, to sort of reduce those risks effectively, and it doesn't
0: interfere with their business too much.
1: Yeah, it doesn't interfere with their business or their MO, then it seems like we could shift the balance in favor of taking action.
0: Okay. So the next group on the list is suppliers of materials and and I guess, you know, technology and intellectual property and and that sort of thing, you know, services that are important inputs to research projects. What is there that's uh, interesting or important to say about that group and where they ought to be or what you'd ideally like them to do?
1: Yeah. I mean, so the simplest way to describe this group is when you're a bioscience researcher, you need services and you need stuff to do your work. And I think a classic example to make this very concrete is DNA synthesis providers. So People in research labs are constantly ordering DNA over the Internet to sort of do their next experiment. And then it gets shipped to them in the mail a few days later or a couple days later. And so that's a crucial service and an integrated part of the bioscience research infrastructure. That's an example of the industry and the community of service providers really doing the right thing. They've voluntarily stepped forward to screen their orders and their customers for the most part, even though it's not legally required. Because they think it's in their enlightened self interest. (laughs) And they're doing a pretty good job across the board. I mean, I think the downside there is there isn't comprehensive coverage. You know, we don't exactly know what percentage of global market share is covered. The best number I've heard is 80%. So, an estimated 80% of global market share is covered by companies that screen. And then there's a a gap, roughly 20%, but we don't really know for sure of companies that are not screening. And we want to get, again, with plugging the biggest holes. We want to get closer to full coverage. The concrete example of what we're doing at NTI is we're developing an international common mechanism for DNA synthesis screenings to make it easier for providers to screen, to make it cheaper and faster. So we can get more comprehensive coverage and we can just like raise the standard of practice across the providers that do screen. The one thing I would add is like, that's an example. That's not everything. You know, and I think there are going to be new service providers in the future that we're going to want to look at. For example, cloud labs are something that are coming online that where we might want to look at analogous solution sets and get ahead of the curve there in terms of safeguarding that space as well.
0: What about companies that supply things other than synthesized DNA, just like other, you know, advanced inputs that you might need in a, in a research lab? To what extent could they interrogate a project about, you know, what exactly are you doing with these things? Are you following, say, some, you know, biosecurity protocol and and they'd only be willing to sell materials to groups that have met their standards for safety?
1: That's a possible future. I think that plugs into this idea of a seal of approval that I was talking about a few minutes ago, where you would have to figure out what are the standards of practice that we want to incentivize and sort of measure against, and who's actually qualified to ascertain whether a company or a lab in question is actually in compliance, and can we have a credible third party do that? And so I think that future is plausible, but we have to build the infrastructure to make that real, and we just don't have that right now.
0: Yeah, I guess if you're a for-profit company, how do you pay for this? Because if you have a competitor that's not doing it, then they're potentially going to be able to undercut you. So you're going to have like, you know, prudential self-regulation by an industry that have to really be on board with the idea that it's a big threat to their industry to have anyone not following these rules because it could bring down the hammer on everyone.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think the best analogy here is the DNA synthesis community. I mean, I think they have invested a lot of resources in screening, even though it's not legally required, because they know that it would be really damaging to their entire industry and to them as individual companies, if they were involved in selling DNA, and it turned out to be associated with some horrible accident that could have been prevented or anticipated or a bioterrorist attack. So I think... To an extent, enlightened self-interest can be helpful. And even if there's no legal requirement, I think there are still some details to work out in terms of the incentive structure for industry for the kind of seal of approval and, and peer review that we're talking about. So it's not trivial to figure that out. But yeah, I mean, I think you're asking the right kinds of questions. The only other thing I would say is that some things are more conducive to this kind of screening than others. I mean, I think there are things like DNA synthesis screening Or like cloud labs where you could look specifically what the customer in question is trying to order and evaluate pretty carefully whether it's risky or not. And there are other things that are very general purpose, like centrifuges or, you know, just like equipment, automation equipment, that there's nothing you could do to look at the order in question and say, oh, this is like irresponsible. Right. It's just a very general use. And so I think for general use stuff, it's harder To screen in that way, you could still do the kind of thing that you're talking about, which is screening your customer. So, you know, there are different ways to to approach that. With
0: the DNA screening case, there's very different threat models. So so one would be researchers who are perhaps doing something that they that they ought not to be because they, they just aren't risk averse enough. And then there's also like, the, you know, the malicious actor who knows that they're, that, that, that they're getting something very that they're, that they're doing something very bad. Yeah. And for them, it seems like even if you have a single company that's outside of the system and isn't doing any screening, then you have a big problem because then everyone who is malicious can just go to that to that one single company. But I guess it's easier maybe in the case of if someone's accidentally doing something that's dangerous, then they get like alerts from the company that they're buying from that might push them in the right direction. But This is one thing that's kind of demoralized people a little bit is the sense that, well, if you don't have 100% globally, then it doesn't help at all.
1: I would push back on that. And again, this is I'm going to go back. I'm going to sound like a, a broken record. The solution is still effective, even if it's not 100%. And I think that's true across the board for biosecurity and pandemic preparedness. And I think the reason in this specific case, this question of like, what if there's one company that's outside the regime and all the bad actors are going there? I think if that were the case, we would know it. If there was one outlier that was just being very irresponsible in selling materials to malicious actors, first of all, it would be pretty obvious, pretty clearly, there are various actors that could apply a lot of pressure on that company or that country in question to cease and desist. And the other thing is, fundamentally, these companies, to last, they have to have a business model that works in a legitimate bioscience sector. So, you know, a company that's well known to be selling materials to bad actors isn't going to last as a commercial enterprise. You can't like build a business on that. And so I just don't think that's that's actually a viable business model. And so if you can reduce the search space from all synthesis to like one tiny slice. Customers where,
0: of this one dodgy company. That yeah, known as the one that's better.
1: a much more attractable problem for the intelligence community and the physical security sector to focus their attention on. If that's where you are, you're in a much better place than there's nothing. So I would push back pretty hard on this proposition that if you have defectors, the whole thing is pointless. I don't think that's actually true.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. The final group is uh, publishers. What's interesting about them?
1: You know, gotta give them credit where credit is due. Journal publishers have... As of years ago, they recognized this problem, they formed a network, they have made joint declarations about their intention to screen publications more vigorously for biosecurity, they put processes in place, or at least some of them have. Um, And so I think generally, their intentions are good, and they have taken steps in the right direction. In my view, they need our help and we need to go further. And the reason I think that is I still see papers coming out that I or my colleagues in the biosecurity community view as like arguably information hazards. And that includes in the last year, we see things come out and it just really we question whether that really should have come out in the way that it did. And, you know, reasonable people can disagree about what the criteria should be or whether those papers should come out in that form. But my personal view is that uh, we're not where we need to be, notwithstanding the really great efforts that the community has already taken. The other thing I will say, sort of perspective of publishers, I've heard them say this and they're right. They've said to me, look, we don't want to be single handedly responsible for mitigating all biosecurity threats associated with publication of research. You guys need to handle this upstream. Don't dump all the responsibility on us. I think that's totally a valid argument, which is consistent with our lifecycle approach, where we're trying to go as upstream as we can and hit it every opportunity. The other thing I would say is, again, here we should view the publication community as allies where we could help them do better and give them more resources because they, like everyone else, have finite resources and time. And the process for looking at publications, figuring out how to deal with them is not trivial. It's hard, and so I think they could use some help. I mean, the other thing that has happened in recent years that has made this more complicated is, is you don't just have traditional academic journals anymore. You now also have these like instant self-publication functions, like Bioarchive, right? And people can just post, and it's 24 hours and it's up. And so, like, that's great. And, you know, my partner's a scientist, and he makes use of that, and like, it's awesome, and it's totally democratized publication, and I think is fabulous. But it does make this harder. And we need to figure out how to deal with the biosecurity considerations in that kind of environment.
0: Yeah, interesting. It seems like even if you could just get the most prestigious journals on board, that would go a decent part of the way, because then it means that scientists would think ahead of time. You know, I want to publish in a really prestigious journal, and none of them will accept it if it's too dangerous. So I've got to think ahead of time about like where the bar is for them. They're not going to be keen to put up a bio archive if you're like a cutting edge, just by a, a, yeah, you know, synthesis person.
1: No, I think you make a great point. I think that there can be the leading journals in the community that are most prestigious. If they sort of take a stance, then that could sort of propagate downstream to other journals as well, that they could start to also emulate those approaches. So I think that that's a really good point. And it's another way where a a non 100% coverage answer could still get us moving in the right direction. Yeah, exactly. Move the needle. That's what we need to do.
0: Okay. uh, Zooming back out again, what's the biggest weakness of the platform that you've laid out here? What worries you?
1: So I think there are a few hurdles, like one of them is we just need to get really broad international support for this. I mean, we don't have to have 100 percent coverage, but I think for this to really work meaningfully, we're going to have to get a lot of countries on board and a lot of communities on board. I think it's in all our shared interest to do this, but we have a lot of work ahead of us to get there. So I think there's work to be done there. I think we can set this in motion with very clear ideas about what this should do. And I think the challenge will be over time for the organization to stay focused about reducing the greatest risks and threats and be very clear-minded about what it's trying to do and continue to develop concrete ideas for really reducing the risk. I think a failure mode is that, like, if, if there's weak leadership for the for this organization or it sort of drifts over time and loses its focus, it could be less effective. So I think it's really important to have strong leadership that really gets it, like, has the right combination of people that are, like, politically savvy and know how to continue to maintain the relationships with all the key players and also really technically astute and focused and developing innovative solutions. And so I think it's really actually hard for an organization to sort of do all those things. I mean, it's totally doable, but we have to get really excellent people who are really dedicated and and really smart and analytical about how to solve these problems. So I think we can do it, and I'm optimistic. And, you know, it's basically our top priority on the bio team, but it's a huge priority for NTI across the board. And we're really committed to this, but we have to work hard to sort of set it in motion in a way that it's likely to succeed.
0: Yeah. There's quite a lot of different actors. Here. Obviously, there's like for each one, there's like probably several things that we would like them to do differently than what they're doing now. Yeah. If you could only get, you know, a few parts of it taken up, like which parts would you prioritize most highly?
1: I think I would start with the places where we have a really clear theory of change and a lot of leverage and a clear set of actions. So I think DNA synthesis screening is definitely part of that core package. And, you know, we've developed a pretty concrete set of actions. And we're actually going to start there in terms of the scope of activity of this entity, this organization. I think the other two places where there's a lot of leverage is at the beginning and the end of the cycle. I think funders have tremendous leverage. So if we can get this bio funders compact sorted and get funders to all get behind doing a biosecurity review, that would be huge. I think that's probably one of the me- the most impactful things we can do to sort of shift the incentive structures and the mindset of people. And then at the other end, I think publishers also have a lot of leverage. So if you get the funders and the publishers, that would make a huge change.
0: On the funders. If I remember correctly, the National Institutes for Health in the US is like an enormous funder or it's just like a giant in the field. Is that right? So, mm-hmm. so maybe if you could like move, move that. Tens
1: of billions of dollars a year.
0: So I guess like they're pretty high on the list of groups you'd like to persuade. And they might actually have the resource and given their scale to do a really thorough job to hire the right people to like have the processes.
1: So the US government and the US Department of Health and Human Services, which oversees the National Institutes of Health, does have a process in place. And in fact, during the Obama administration, you know, there was all this concern about gain-of-function research with certain pathogens of pandemic potential. And the U.S. government put in place a two-year moratorium on some of that work. And then they, you know, at the White House level, they sort of revisited the question of, like, what should the governance requirements look like? What should pre-funding review look like? They put out something called P3CO. Which is an acronym. It sounds suspiciously like C3PO, (laughs) but it's not an accident. There was a sci fi nerd in the mix that may have made that happen, which is a fun side note. And HHS, Health and Human Services, which oversees NIH, was the first to actually tackle it and try to make that real at an institutional level. Um, If you look at the news, there's a lot of live conversation about how that's going (laughs) and whether or not it's robust enough. And I think some criticisms of this process is it hasn't been as transparent as some in the biosecurity community would like it to be. So there's a call for more transparency about who's involved in the process and what's involved in the process. And I think there's some open questions about criteria, like are they stringent enough? And I believe, I've read in the news recently that in recent years that the NIH had changed their criteria and made them less stringent. And so that actually has gotten a ton of attention recently in the news because there's so much discussion about gain-of-function research and what should and shouldn't happen and what's responsible and not. And so it's just an active subject of discussion in the media. And I know that the White House is also thinking about this a lot and trying to figure out how we can step up our game and do a better job. So it's a live issue. And absolutely, the U.S. government is a huge funder of bioscience research. And if they get it right, that could really help the field as a whole.
0: All right, you've answered all, basically all the questions I've got here. So, uh, probably time to move on from the NTI policy agenda here, both on shaping intent and constraining capabilities. Is there anything you'd like to say to pull things together or like an overall remark?
1: You know, I really appreciate this conversation and, and it's been really rich and appreciate the opportunity to talk about this in, in intense detail. I would say it's a really interesting time and I think it's sort of what I view as a pivot point. Because I think our community has really been looking at these kinds of questions of how do we really prevent deliberate and accidental release events for years. And I think we've struggled to come up with like a, a framework for where we could like advance meaningful projects that will actually reduce risks in real ways that stand up to scrutiny. And I think we're making some headway in in terms of coming up with new approaches or refreshed approaches. And so I'm optimistic that we'll be able to make a lot of progress. And it's exciting to see the biosecurity community really move forward with some of these initiatives. You know, I have to say part of the credit that's due for all this progress is the EA community, in particular, the EA funders that have put so much money into this field certainly includes Open Philanthropy Project. It also includes Longview and others. I don't want to leave anyone off, but there are a lot of people who have really focused on this. And I do think that it's making a difference. There's a lot more of us than there used to be whose full-time job it is to think about biosecurity and how to reduce risks. And we're able to sort of make progress in a way that wasn't possible 10 years ago. And it's like a lot of it is thanks to the EA community. So just really grateful for that support and the commitment to this issue set.
0: Yeah. Beautiful. You've definitely laid out a lot of hours of work.
1: <laughs> yeah. There's a lot.
0: Much more than 80,000 hours. I suspect tens of on millions of hours. So yeah, with 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 that in mind, I guess let's push on to think about some kind of concrete career advice or things that someone out there in the listening audience might actually be able to do if they're thinking this is this is really cool and maybe some point in my career I'd, I'd like to be able to help out with this. Yeah. Just a spontaneous first question is, it seems like there's just a lot of conversations that have to be had for these things to happen because you have got to go around and talk to all these different groups who like are kind of on board but they've got other things to think about and persuade them that they really want to do this do this because it's important. What is kind of the staffing requirement for that? And do you just need a lot of people with a reasonable level of technical ability and good social skills or good persuasive skills or diplomacy?
1: That's a great question. And I would say, I think there are a few bottlenecks in this field that we really need to address. And one of them is just the talent pipeline. Because this hasn't been a well-funded field until pretty recently, there haven't been a lot of strong incentives for people to pursue a career in this field. And there's just not a lot of You know, there's a lot of expertise in pandemic response and preparedness and public health related work because that has been a live issue for a long time. But a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about has been kind of underfunded and under-resourced. And so, you know, we at NTI have a lot of work to do and we're bandwidth constrained and we're always trying to make hard decisions about how do we prioritize our time. But we're also trying to hire talented people to help us do the work. And it's hard to find enough talent, frankly. You know, I know that a lot of smart people in the space are thinking about how to expand the pipeline, and that's great. And we, we at NTI also want to be doing that. In terms of the skills that we're looking for, I think there are lots of different types of skill sets. I think one combination of skills that is really hard to find, but I think incredibly important, is people who understand technical issues and can think about things from a detailed technical perspective of some kind of training in bioinformatics or bioscience or computer science or something like that, but also who can write well. And who understand the sort of international policy context and some of the sort of risk frameworks and the institutions that we're operating in and can kind of help us put it together.
0: When you put it that way, I understand why it's hard to hire.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I think we're going to have to train a younger generation of people to have that combination of skill sets. I would say, you know, there are some people who have that skill set, but institutions sort of conspire against you. Usually you're pushed in one stovepipe lane or the other. You either become a policy person or... Or you become a technical person, if you want to have both skill sets, you have to be pretty determined. Pretty pushy. There are people like that, but you have to be pretty determined and go against the grain of what the institutions are trying to tell you to do, including educational institutions. So we have to create new career paths that make that easier and sort of new educational curricula that are more interdisciplinary. I think creativity and thinking outside the box is so important. There are a lot of people out there who can sort of cite what other people have said or tell you the history of XYZ or cite facts. I think what we need more of is people who can take information and integrate it and think about a problem they're trying to solve and develop a creative solution and think outside the box. That is also really hard to find, and we desperately need more of that.
0: I was just going to say, there's, um, there was, is it the American Academy of Sciences Policy Fellowship? Or... Yeah.
1: Yes. Yeah, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, AAAS, and they have a Science and Technology Policy Fellowship. I did that fellowship. That's sort of what got me into U.S. government. It was fantastic it's a great opportunity. I think most of the people who go through that program have a PhD or a graduate degree in science or engineering. There's a few social scientists in the mix that have a PhD in their respective fields. You have to be a US citizen to do it, but it's a great program. It is a great pipeline for creating the kind of people that I'm talking about.
0: Yeah. Okay. So you've kind of laid out one archetype that's really important to pursue this agenda, which is people with a reasonable level of technical knowledge and also a reasonable understanding of policy, law, government, and I guess possibly international organizations as well. Are are there any other archetypes that people should have in mind or like other important skills that you might need in order to get all of this done?
1: So another archetype that I'm also imagining in person that I would love to find is people who can think about sort of nation states and their capabilities and intentions and like deterrence and all this sort of traditional sort of International security thinking and apply it in a biosecurity context. I think that area is really neglected. We're trying to build out some of that thinking at NTI. We need more people who are really can do that. So there are people who sort of have that training or or mindset. And there are people who understand biosecurity and pandemic preparedness or even the technical issues. And there there are people who look at the history of the Biological Weapons Convention and study like look to the past. Right. But there are very few people whose job it is to think about how do we create a future world where there are good incentive structures and institutions in place where bioweapons are less attractive to states. And we need people like that.
0: Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Are there any other folks on this list? I mean, plausibly, you just need lots of operations staff as well, like, you know, uh, talented people who can do the fundraising and the communication, all of the other supporting roles within NTI or these organizations you're trying to build.
1: Yeah, absolutely. There are lots of different roles. I mean, there are some people who really like to provide support and are really enthusiastic about the mission. Some people really like to plan meetings and make events happen, right? And that's like where they want to focus their time. Other skills that are really valuable are project management, right? Like how do you have a big, complicated project that has lots of moving pieces and different roles? How do you make sure it stays on schedule? How do you make sure it happens? Like make it happen. That is a skill. You can be super smart, and come up with a lot of theoretical constructs. But if you can't manage a project, it's going to be very hard for you to make progress. So that's another skill set that's valuable.
0: I suspect that if I applied to the US Department of Defense, they wouldn't hire me because I guess I'm not an American, among other things. Actually, <laughs> there's, there's quite a lot of other people, it, quite a lot of non-Americans in the audience, and maybe people who don't feel they're suited to a military or a security career. How could people in those buckets potentially contribute to all this?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So the U.S. is not the center of the universe. There are other countries that are doing important work. And what I would say is because of where the money has been, where the institutions have been, there are a lot of people who have some degree of biosecurity skills and knowledge that are either in the U.S. or in Western Europe. A lot of those folks are in the U.K., including yourself.
0: Yeah, (laughs) both of (laughs) us is right now. (laughs) That's
1: correct. And then as you sort of step outside Western Europe and the United States, there are very few biosecurity experts And I think that really needs to change. We are going to be able to drive progress much more effectively if you have smart, thoughtful biosecurity people in countries and regions around the world. You know, I can tell you when we plan international meetings, we're always trying to get more diversity of, of, you know, geographic representation. And it's really hard to find biosecurity experts from all over the place. And so to the extent that there are people in the effective altruism community from all these other countries, we really need you To sort of play that role in your respective country, both because you can come to the table (laughs) and represent a perspective from a different country or region, which would be different from an American or an English or a Western European perspective, and because you have an opportunity to shape the thinking in your respective governments. And as we were saying before, we need more governments to take this seriously if we're going to shift the dynamics and make more progress. So I think in some countries, there are opportunities in government. In other countries, there might be opportunities in non-governmental organizations Um, Some places will have both. And, you know, I think there's a great example. You know, I participated earlier today in this really cool international conference, uh, SBA 1.0, which is the inaugural international conference on synthetic biology and biosecurity. And it's the first time they've had one of those in Africa. A very smart person, (laughs) Jeffrey Odom, who really spearheaded this and organized it and fundraised for it and made it happen And he, a few years ago, was a biosecurity fellow at a program that was funded by Open Philanthropy and organized by the Johns Hopkins Center for Health Security. And he sort of became more interested in biosecurity. And then he decided to build a program in Africa to sort of advance synthetic biology and biosecurity on the continent. And that's fantastic. I would love to see more of that. There's a lot of opportunity if you don't see the institution that you'd like to see in your country or in your region, you know, there are more resources than there used to be. And, you know, you could build it. And I think there'll be a lot of people in this community to be enthusiastic to support you.
0: Just to check if I'm kind of understanding you right, it seems like for a lot of this agenda, given that it is like so international in scope. Yeah. It's not just enough to have people that like the US government be on board. You want to have like many countries sympathetic or even actively supporting, saying that this is an important priority to them. We have a non-trivial audience in, in India, actually.
1: Fabulous. I guess
0: because of the English, English language. Mm-hmm. And if you were someone there, potentially becoming the top expert in India on GCBRs and biosecurity and these kind of issues, maybe that's imaginable because there's just not that much competition there. So there's not a lot of people trying to do that. And then I guess you could plausibly be hired by the Indian government or become the person who the Indian government asks <laughs> for advice on, on, on this kind of issue if it comes up in places like the UN or elsewhere. Is, is is that like a conceivable path for someone?
1: So first of all, the idea of a community of biosecurity experts and GCBR experts Growing up in India, either in civil society or government, I would love to see that. That would be incredible. India is a very important voice in the international community, and I think shaping that voice would have a lot of potential impact, and I think it would be great. And I would really encourage that. I don't have enough insights into sort of the inner workings of the Indian government and how they hire to know like how easy it would be to get a job there and whatnot. But I think there is also robust civil society there. It is a democracy. And we would love to see more biosecurity experts and GCBR experts in India. That would be amazing.
0: Yeah. I guess what about like co- countries more broadly generally painting that like as a plausible path for someone or something that they should consider, at least if they, if they can't migrate to the US?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think the, the argument you're making about the value of becoming a, a sort of biosecurity expert or a GCBR expert in your country, really valuable for all the reasons we've already said. And I think that the marginal impact of that is much higher than having another biosecurity expert in the U.S. I mean, obviously, we need more expertise in the U.S. And like there's more work to be done in the U.S. But I think that there's much more work to be done overseas. That's where the you know the heavy lift is it doesn't mean that you start by going to your, you know, like you got to learn from someone, right? So like when you're early in your career, it's good to work for an organization or a partner with someone who can teach you and train you. And and so you got to find a way to learn. But then if you can take that knowledge and go to your country and build a more knowledgeable community around yourself there, that's incredible impact in my view.
0: Yeah, I think a lot of people will be happy to hear that because they can have this sense of like, you know, I've got to work in some prestigious defense thing or, or bust. And it sounds like it's it's definitely not the case.
1: No, I actually I would encourage people to take a different approach.
0: Yeah, interesting. This is possibly um, too big a question to answer, but I guess we've talked about lots of different kinds of institutions here, and I wonder how people who care about GCBR security issues should weigh up kind of careers in academia versus think tanks and nonprofits like NTI versus national governments versus international orgs. Do any of those seem like usually more promising than another?
1: So I would say you can a priori say that one is more promising than the other. I can sort of make some general statements. Like, I think you can make an impact in any of these places. I will say that in academia... It can be a little harder sometimes because I think it really depends on whether your academic institution is going to support you in doing work that doesn't fall neatly within a defined academic discipline. It doesn't fit neatly in bioengineering or molecular biology, and it doesn't fit neatly in political science. Public policy kind of straddles two disciplines. So I would say, in theory, you can make a difference in an academic context. But I think the institutional structures in academia are going to have to flex in order to make that easier. And actually, like this is a call to sort of EA funders. If you want to accelerate progress in that domain, you might want to consider establishing certain academic positions to make that more achievable, because I think it's kind of hard right now, just by the way things are set up but you know Megan Palmer is at Stanford and she's doing amazing work. She's an example of a very talented academic that's really leading really important conversations. And because she's in an academic setting, she's free to explore things sort of in a conceptual way. Her her approach to sort of addressing this issue set is a little different and quite complementary to some of the stuff that we're doing at NTI, which is a nonprofit, and we actually work with her because she brings something different to the conversation which we really value. In terms of, you know, governments' I think anyone who has a chance to sort of work in a government in their respective country or an international organization, I would absolutely, even if you don't want to spend your whole career there, I think it's a great idea to spend at least a year or two checking it out. Because once you learn how the inside of the machine works, you're going to be much more effective on the outside in trying to shape it. I started my career working in a non-governmental organization. I spent all my time trying to shape what government did, but government was a bit of a black box to me. Then I went into government and then came back out. And I feel like I'm much more effective at what I do because I understand how the machine works because I was inside the belly of the beast. And I would commend that. I think that's true for both governments and for international organizations like WHO and the U.N. And that brings me to another point, which is just you don't have to spend your entire life in one institution or one kind of institution. And In fact, I think you're likely to be more effective at problem solving If you move between different types of institutions, you'll have more perspective about how different parts of the system work and you'll have more relationships and you'll be better at problem solving creatively. Occasionally,
0: I hear people say something that's kind of like, you know, uh, if you have the opportunity to take a role in government, then that's likely to be like much more impactful than, you know, developing policy outside of government because you can actually just like try to try to write the policy that. But I feel like conceptually, that can't quite be right, because these roles are so complementary, because people, once they're inside government, then they don't have any time to think about like what they should actually be doing a lot of the time, or at least that's what I've heard. So they need people outside at think tanks in academia or, or elsewhere, like figuring out once you actually have a policy shaping role, what should you be doing? Because that actually requires like a lot of conversations, a lot of like deep background understanding and so on. So it seems like to some degree, how impactful these roles are is tied together and they they can't radically differ from one another because of the deep like complementary nature.
1: I'm generally sympathetic to that argument. I basically agree with what you're saying. I think that's right. And you know, if you've spent time in both of those sectors, you'll understand that very intuitively. And I think it's very true. So they actually absolutely are complementary and in the way that you're describing and when they work together well, it can be a beautiful thing and a lot of stuff happens. You know, like what I'll say about having spent some time inside of government, you're closer to the lovers of power. And so you can write policies or make decisions if you're in a place where you have influence as opposed to sort of a tiny cog in a huge machine, right? You have to be in the right place with the right leadership and the right authorities and opportunities. So, yeah, you can be close to the levers of power. You can write the policy. You can shape the policy. But you're more constrained. Governments tend to be fairly conservative institutions. There are a lot of voices that need to be heard. There are a lot of rules. And so, you know, while you have in the best situation, you might have a lot of power. You don't necessarily have a ton of freedom. And as you point out, you also don't necessarily have time to do deep research. That's not your job if you're actually writing policy. On the other hand, in the NGO community, you have less power. You don't control. The way that we exert influence most, for the most part, convincing other people to do, to do things, not by doing things ourselves. But we have more freedom, and we we have more freedom to sort of take different actions. We have more freedom to speak publicly about our views. We have more time to think creatively. And so they are complementary, and I think that's right. And I think it's great to try both and see sort of what feels right.
0: Yeah, I guess maybe one way of synthesizing this is um, there's moments when, you know, the minister is really on board with your thing and says, please come in. I want to hire you. I want you to draft the regulations uh, for, for me. Fabulous. When that happens, you should absolutely go and do that
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> because those occasions only come up fairly rarely. Uh, and, and you know, you, you'll, be, you'll be like crossing the finish line at that point, actually like getting things done. But the reason you're going to have all of that impact at that final moment is because all of this preparation has been done potentially by you and lots of other people figuring out what you should actually draft in those regulations once you get the golden opportunity to do so.
1: Yeah, I think that there's a lot of truth in that. I mean, there are moments in government in the US and in other governments where the stars will just align where there are people that you know who sort of share your worldview and your priorities and they've created an opening to make some change and they want you to be involved and you're going to be able to make an impact, great, go for it. Sometimes there's a lot of work that goes on beyond the scenes to set up that moment in time and is where the stars align. You can't assume that's going to happen all the time. I think the only exception I would offer is you don't always know that the golden moment is going to happen before you go in. Sometimes you just need to go in and take a leap of faith that something good will come of it. And the other thing is, even if you don't make a huge impact, just going in for a year or two and learning how the system works is incredibly valuable. Future and it will multiply. Capital. Yeah, it'll multiply your potential for impact downstream if you leave government and work somewhere else. You'll just be so much more knowledgeable and credible, and you'll know what you're doing. And so I would say absolutely, like, go for it if you have this golden opportunity, but that shouldn't be the standard for entering government service.
0: All right, well, we're almost done, but uh, we got quite okay. a few audience questions for you. <laughs> Are you happy to do it a handful?
1: Yeah, happy to do that.
0: Okay. Yeah. The first question was um, government policy and civil society actors in foreign countries. How open are they to communication and cooperation?
1: Yeah. So, you know, I think a lot of other governments and or governments and countries around the world and civil society organizations have a shared interest in reducing catastrophic biological risks. And I think that they are, as a general matter, incredibly open to collaboration and communication. I think... It's easier for civil society organizations to collaborate just because they're, as I explained a few minutes ago, they are less constrained by all the sort of rules and constraints that governments might face. Unfortunately, there aren't as many biosecurity organizations and countries around the world as we'd like to see. So I think it would be great to have more partners to collaborate with on these important issues. In terms of governments, I think it can be complicated. So governments are more open to collaborating on this and others less. So it sort of depends on what their current policy positions are and how important biosecurity is to them right now and what the specific ask is. And if the ask of them or the thing we're trying to advance comports with and is consistent with with their current state and national policy, if it pushes them a little bit outside their comfort zone. So it really depends on the issue.
0: Yeah. And I also asked, do you think COVID has increased or decreased the willingness to communicate and cooperate internationally?
1: So COVID is really an interesting milestone in our longer journey to address these risks. These risks that we've been talking about have existed long before COVID. And the difference is that COVID has created as it's drawn a lot more attention to this issue set. And, you know, we have this sort of phenomenon that uh, has been described as a cycle of panic and neglect. You know, after a major biological incident like the anthrax attacks of 2001, like the Ebola outbreaks in West Africa and now COVID, there is a moment in time and a political window of opportunity for change and taking big steps to reduce risks. And then as time passes after those big crises, people lose interest and the attention spans wane and the, and the money dries up and progress kind of stalls. I think the thing that's special about COVID is just the scale of it. I think it has sort of broadened the over 10 window in terms of what people think is the magnitude of the risk that we're dealing with. You know, my experience that I can speak to personally is that I've gone to international meetings where people are talking about an Ebola scale event that they're worried about. And that's really important to work on. And I applaud all those efforts. But, you know, I've definitely been in a position where I've said, you know, this is important, but let's also think about something that could be happening on multiple continents at the same time. Let's also think about something that could reach the scale of millions of people. Sometimes it just didn't get a lot of traction. People just didn't want to engage. It was just either they would just ignore the comment or set it aside or would just say, well, a smaller event is already bad enough. And so I think with COVID, we've had almost 5 million deaths and in excess of 200 million cases. And those are just the cases we know about. And there have been trillions of dollars in economic losses. So it's been a global tragedy. But I would say that it has opened people's minds to the scale of pandemic threats that the world faces and and what we really need to be. How
0: bad these things can get.
1: That's right. And I think that um, it provides us with an opportunity to say, we need to think about not only about responding to the current pandemic, but to prevent and mitigate future pandemics, which could be as bad as COVID or could be worse than COVID, including more than one order of magnitude worse. We can say that credibly, and I think people take that more seriously than they would have done before the pandemic.
0: Another audience question, kind of on a similar theme, was how can we maintain international cooperation on global health security in an environment characterized by high levels of strategic competition between countries?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. And I think it came in over Twitter fonts to your poll. um, It's a great question. This era of great power competition that we're in is making global cooperation on key issues harder. But I am optimistic that this is an area where we could have cooperation, including between countries that have tensions in other areas. So first of all, I think we can all agree that we have a shared interest in reducing pandemic risks. There's genuine shared interests there. And I think everyone around the world, without exception, is suffering from the impacts of COVID and would like to have a brighter future where this is less of a risk. But there's also a historical example that I think of when I think of this question, which is During the Cold War, at the height of tensions between the United States and Russia, there were track two dialogues between scientists who were really focused on reducing nuclear risks, and they were able to have an open line of communication about technical issues that were actually pretty sensitive about nuclear weapons between scientists when the governments couldn't talk to each other directly and it was too tense. And I think that's a really important historical example and one that we try to emulate in the biosecurity space, and I think there's room for biosecurity dialogues between countries' that otherwise might have tensions between them to talk about these issues and in, to include scientists, because scientists are really good at talking to each other <laughs> across barriers. And I think that that's a real path to progress. And I think we should be pushing forward in those areas for biosecurity. And it's something that NTI is is actively pursuing.
0: All right. Well, uh, we've been going a while and you've boldly fielded every every question I managed <laughs> to write for you, except for this last slide I want. Okay. Uh, in prepping, I uh, found out that you've been fortunate enough to live in quite a few countries. That's guess right. You're, you're, you're in the UK with me, with me now, but you've also lived in, uh, in the US, of course, and, and Israel and China. That's right. I'm normally a connoisseur of complaints. I, I, I noticed I, that I do about love you. About, <laughs> 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 I, I, I do love hearing about the negative, but I'm going to fight my negativity bias with this question. Say, what's maybe one thing that you liked about each of these countries?
1: Yeah, my favorite thing about each of these places. Okay, so one thing that makes me feel very American, the thing that I think is wonderful about the US is just the optimism and dynamism and the yes, we can spirit and the sort of drive for innovation and the risk tolerance. I think that's fabulous. I think it is a huge driver of progress in the US and something that I really strongly identify with and it makes me proud to be an American. In terms of the United Kingdom, I live here now. There are lots of things I love about it. Two things that I think are really awesome, you know, like the sort of the lived experience here in the UK is so fabulous. You know, there's something that's special in the UK that you don't have in other places, and that's pubs. And the pub is this wonderful community gathering space that is very inclusive and people from all walks of life come together. And it's very informal and you have great food and, and great beer. And it's like really high quality experience and it's not expensive and it's not fussy. And I think we sort of try to have pubs in the U.S., but we totally fail. It's just not the same thing. It's either like a dive bar or like a very fancy, fussy place that isn't quite as laid back. So I think the pubs in England are just really special. I have to say two positive things. I think the gardening scene in the U.K. is amazing. I have a garden. You've seen it. I love gardening. I love BBC Gardener's World and Monty Don. He's my hero. It's fabulous. It's fabulous.
0: Okay, so, so the U.S. has a great culture that supports entrepreneurship and science and progress, and the U.K. has pubs and gardening.
1: <laughs> no comment. I said, no, go on, go on. I'm not comparing. I'm just saying things that I like. These
0: are, These are good things. I, I, go, go. Well, I see what you yeah. tried to do
1: there. I, I'm not going along with that narrative. China. I only spent six months living in China. It was back in 2005. I think the thing that was most dramatic and like eye-opening about that is just the pace of change. China is changing so quickly. Rapid economic development, cities are being built up quickly, people being lifted out of poverty, the ideologies about what middle class people should be doing and what their roles in society are changing. And it was just really fascinating to watch that happening before my eyes. I mean, I'm just used to living in developed countries where the rate of change is quite low. And just seeing that in China was just amazing. It was very eye opening and just fascinating. Israel, I think the people in Israel are just, you know, I have a lot of family that has ties to israel i think the people in israel just really warm and open and lovely and it's really easy to connect with them and they're also just really direct i think a lot of people in the ea community value directness israelis are very direct i mean this is a gross generalization it's not true of everyone but the culture of discourse is very direct and you might always not like what people are telling you but you will know what they think they will not (laughs) be fooling you and i think that can be very valuable sometimes so there you go. There's my river of positivity for you. I hope it didn't bum you out.
0: <laughs> I really want to ask about the bad stuff, but we'll have to wait for a, for a follow-up You'll maybe have to wait. Find out, the... find out what you yeah. don't like. <laughs> uh, this has been super fun. My guest today has been uh, Jamie Yassif. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours Podcast, Jamie.
1: Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure to chat with you today. And thanks for all the great work that you guys are doing at 80,000 Hours.
0: If you'd like to dedicate your career to reducing global catastrophic biological risks, you should think about applying to speak with our team one-on-one for free. We've made some hires this year, and so we're able to speak personally with a lot more readers and listeners than has ever been possible in the past. Our advisors can chat about your philosophical views, think about which problems might be a good fit, take a look over your plan, introduce you to prospective mentors, and even suggest specific organizations that might be able to use your skills right now. Just go to 80000 speak to learn more and apply if you feel like it. All right. The 80,000 Hours Podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering and technical editing for this episode by Ryan Kessler and Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.